Hello everyone and welcome to Millennial Rewind, where we take a not-so-sentimental look at the movies and TV shows that were around when millennials were growing up. I'm your host, Nick, coming to you from the superconductor of spiritual turbulence of the West Coast, Los Angeles, California. And joining me here in the City of Angels is my co-host, Jules. Jules, how are you doing today? I've been consistently crossing the streams in public bathrooms since I was 12. That explains the smell at your house. Okay, okay. And joining us from the rundown firehouse that excites Dan Aykroyd of Southern California, the Inland Empire, is my other co-host, John. John, what's happening? I'm planning a nerd party. We're going to have carrot sticks and dip. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Uh, make sure there's a sparkling mineral water there as well, you know? <laughs> All the health foods. Calm down, John. Seriously. I know. We're wild. We are wild up in here. Uh, and all of that is because this time around, we are reviewing the 1984 smash hit comedy Ghostbusters. And Ray Parker Jr. is suing us. He's suing us. And no, we get Huey sued Lewis, a lot. Huey Lewis is suing us. Both. We're just going to get combo sued. It's the power of love, you know? <laughs> hey uh, I want a new drug. John, how would you tell someone you watched Ghostbusters without saying the title? You know, Bustin' makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> that could work for a lot of porn movies. <laughs> John, you say that so often, it's lost all meaning. <laughs> Uh, and Jules, if the producers had asked you to come up with a different title for this movie, what would it be? Well, this was very difficult, but I went with Professor Perv and the Haunted High Rise. <laughs> nice. Very nice. <laughs> And before we get started, if you like what you hear today, please do us a favor and hit that subscribe button. Also, be sure to share the show with anyone you think might like to listen as well. For some reason, we just, we've been on a streak of reviewing good things. Yeah, why are we doing this again? <laughs> ah, because the new Ghostbusters is coming out. Hollywood's run out of ideas and or they are too chicken shit to develop new IP. So here we are. I'm going to go with either. Because you hear this shit every few years. I've been hearing this since the early 90s, like when they made Brady Bunch and Starsky and Hutch and all these other movies. And oh, all it is is remake. I, you hear this all the fucking time. It's very true. And then original movies come out and they suck. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have more Jupiter Ascending. And so then we go back to this. I've, I've been on the other side of it. And, you know, when people want to keep their jobs, they really want to just choose something that's safe. It's just a matter of what will keep us earning a salary for another year. And when you're given the choice of something new, risky, and you have no idea if anyone will enjoy it, and an established franchise, you choose the established franchise. And that's how you get scripts like Homeward Bound. Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it was, it was lightly triggered there. None of us probably saw this in theaters. Two of us weren't alive, and one of us was semi-conscious. I was to a toddler, yeah. So semi-conscious yeah so what are your guys experiences watching ghostbusters because this this did not go away after 1984 as a franchise for me i mean it was probably one of the earliest live action movies that i absolutely adored and because of that it, it holds such a place in my heart it just my love of science probably was fundamentally held on this movie it just it adds so much that just makes you smile you know even down to the board game i remember we got the board game as a kid everyone always wanted to be egon 
It was like the love of nerd science was sort of born out of this movie. And there's so much about it that is lovable. I'm going to have to agree with the first half of what Jules said because <laughs> we did not have the board game. Um, <laughs> seriously, I mean, you, you touched on the thing. You just nerds there. Everyone wanted to be Egon? At least in my family, yeah. No Winston, no Pinkman, no... <laughs> well, every, no one wanted to be Stance. He was always the last to be chosen. Yeah, I'll give you that. No one wants to be Ray. That's true. But yeah, likewise, I, I loved this movie. I watched it all the time as a child, along with really bad movies. This is a good movie from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, there were parts that scared the shit out of me. Parts that I laughed my ass off. Parts that bored me as a kid that I love now. Uh, we'll hit a few of those. I don't know when I actually watched the whole movie. Because like the library ghost at the beginning would scare the shit out of me. You know, it did me too when I was a kid. And then I'd like turn it off or go away and come back later. So the movie was always very disjointed and out of order. And I never really knew what happened when. <laughs> It's true, actually. That that opening sequence was pretty scary for me, too. But I remember every time wanting to brave it because it's <laughs> so well done. See, I must have watched it much later in life because I don't recall ever being scared by that scene. I mean, for a young child, I can imagine that scene is very, very scary. Oh, yeah. At preschool age, this movie has some fucking terrifying moments. Oh, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. I clearly took my time watching that movie. I'm pretty sure this was a video store rental at some point later in my childhood. I was much more familiar with the real Ghostbusters cartoon show. I remember that. <laughs> I remember that as well. Oh, wait, hold on. You mean the Ghostbusters that's not this Ghostbusters? Oh, no, you said the real. You said the real Ghostbusters. Yes, the okay. real Ghostbusters, the cartoon show, 80s bleeding into the 90s, and also uh, the really, really lucky kids whose parents bought them the Ghostbusters playset. You'd go over to their house for oh, a play date. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was my thought every time I went over. Like, you lucky motherfuckers. You've got the proton packs. You had the, the trap that you could actually step on mm -hmm. and it would open mm -hmm. and you would play Ghostbusters. As kids, that's a status symbol. It really is. It was. Yeah, I had friends that had those. You had like the Nerf hose that was supposed to be the proton stream. <laughs> and you could actually like slap a little cardboard cutout ghost into the <laughs> trap with it. It was awesome. Uh, I don't recall the cardboard bits. Maybe they lost those when I went over, but yeah. The best fucking toy ever was that trap. Absolutely. It, it was amazing. I mean, you, you stepped on the pad, the doors opened and closed. It was amazing. Yep. <laughs> You knew whose parents really loved their kids based off of whether or not they had bought them the Ghostbusters playset. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, because that is how we measure affection is material goods. <laughs> in 90s consumer society. It was that. No, just in this country, just as a species. I suppose I have to chip in with like the, the South African perspective. But yeah, th this was also just like a well-known cultural touch point down there as well. Like everyone knew about it. But my, my intro to the franchise was in America. I feel like it still stands very much alone as a comedy sci-fi fantasy movie. It's I don't know many movies that have been able to recreate what Ghostbusters has managed just as its own. It I think the problem is that they try and recreate it. Possibly. A lot of people shit on the sequel. I actually thought the sequel was okay. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> See, we should have done the sequel and then we would have had a lot more to make fun of. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is true. But I still enjoyed the sequel, too, I remember as a kid. I remember being all right when I saw I really wanted to see the sequel because we love this one so much. I remember the sequel coming out. The ghost had a two. He's flashing up peace and everything. And my parents must have seen the trailers and just been like, 
nah, nah, we're not doing this shit. <laughs> yeah, so this was one of the most expensive comedies ever made. So apparently it took a lot of convincing Columbia Pictures, the studio that made the film, to drop $25, $30 million on a comedy because comedies weren't perceived as being very profitable. And you know what's what I find remarkable is that so many of the special effects have aged so well. I would say it's split about 50-50 yes. because some of them are still fucking amazing and some of them are they do not. Well, there's one that I'll definitely bring up as not having aged well, but I, I just... There's a couple that are so well that I didn't realize were effects. Exactly. There are times where it deserves a lot of compliments for the work that was put into the special effects, because, you know, maybe especially the opening, which we'll get to, but... Slimer apparently cost $300,000. There's a lot of work went into Slimer. It was apparently supposed to be like a tribute to, to Jim Belushi, because Jim Belushi was... John. John Belushi, my bad. Jim's still alive. <laughs> I don't know who anybody is, guys. John Belushi was originally supposed to be in the movie with Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd had this idea. Dan Aykroyd, very into supernatural, paranormal things. There's a promo he does for his Crystal Skull Vodka. You can find it on YouTube. Maybe we can find it and put it in the show notes. But it is... It's bonkers. It is just buckets of crazy. And he is really into this stuff. And it really comes through in the film that John Belushi died. And he talked to Ivan Reitman because Ivan Reitman was he wanted to get him on board. And then Ivan Reitman had to scale down his original idea because originally it was going to be in space and <laughs> it was going to be a lot more serious. And Ivan Reitman said to, to Dan, we're going to do this. is going to cost like $200 million. Let's tone it down. <laughs> Let's bring it down to earth. We're going to have it about some regular people. And they kind of pushed it in the direction of where it was. Ghostbusters in space. Yeah, that was originally, (laughs) and it was supposed to be in the future. And like they'd been a long established franchise. So now we got the origin story. It still went through a lot of iterations. At one point, it took place more in like farmland, like upstate New York. And they eventually worked into the city as they got more popular. And they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to film the city. Let's just do it. So. That eventually got around to what we have now. Well, it seems like with the new one that's coming out, they're going to that original sort of location. Ivan Reitman, of course, the director of classic comedies such as Animal House and Stripe. So he had worked with Bill Murray before and Harold Ramis, for that matter. Were you able to find anything about the copyright dispute for the title? Yeah, I briefly read something about it. This was one of those ones where I tried to get the Blu-ray and it was going to be a Nick bought the Blu-ray episode, but. I was not able to. <laughs> I mean, the only trivia I found on the title was that it used to, it was, you know, prior, it was called Ghost Smashes. Other than that, I, I wasn't aware of anything regarding that. That was the thing they were working on because I couldn't find out why. I did watch it off the DVD, which has like a fact bar and, you know, commentaries and all this. And they kept talking about how they had trouble securing the rights to the name. But I never knew from where what actually held it, like to a point where when they're putting the sign up in front of the firehouse, like they had different signs made for Ghost Smashers, Ghostbusters, all these different alternate titles. And then there's um, a crowd scene where the crowd's chanting Ghostbusters and someone was like on a payphone and held it out and was like, you better get the fucking rights because this is what's going on film. (laughs) Yeah, there was another entity that owned the copyright. It's eluding me who had it. But yeah, that is all very true. They just decided to go with it and see what happened. 
I, I never thought that uh, movie titles could be copyrighted, but I guess if it's... I had heard that as well. Like, you'd be an absolute idiot, but there's nothing stopping you from calling your story The Wizard of Oz. Exactly, yeah. Or maybe it's just that's old enough to be public domain title. I don't know. I feel like Wizard of Oz is coming into the public domain pretty soon. Within our lifetimes, it will be public domain. Not if Disney gets it. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, on that very, yeah, Disney undermining copyright laws to maintain a stranglehold on its classic IP. But that's neither here nor there because we're not talking about Disney. We're talking about Ghostbusters. No. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to start breaking down the movie. Ray, are you sure there are ghosts in the library? There's a student I'm trying to have sex with. Hey, it's the 80s, so I'm just glad you're not trying to rape her as part of some prank. Wait, what? Yes, Vinkman, there are definitely ghosts here. Spangler's been picking them up on his little reader machine thing. I've never seen psychokinetic activity like this. I'm aroused both intellectually and sexually. All right, keep it in your pants, big guy. Gentlemen, through this door, we could finally find proof that supernatural entities walk among us, ready to go through. Yeah, why not? Wait, is that... Ectoplasm. Thick, ropey strands of ectoplasm. My readings can confirm. This is ectoplasm. Okay, it's just that it clearly looks like... You know. Vinkman, take this Petri dish and start collecting samples. Oh, Nobel Prize for sure! Okay, I better not get any of this on my hands. Ah, oh, gross! Ah, oh, some fell off the ceiling into my mouth. Ah, gross. I'm getting strange auditory readings. They're coming from over there. Oh, God, can a guy jerk off in the library stacks in peace? Hang on, you're, you're not a ghost? Duh. I go to the high school around the corner. Stupid teachers won't let you jerk off at school, even though being a teenager is like the horniest time in your life. Wait, so all of that ectoplasm is your... Yeah, it's my cum. Oh, God, I think I'm going to be sick. There's so much of it. Why is it everywhere? God, come where I want. Egon, why didn't your machine pick this up? Oh, I uh, seem to have made an error. I set the device to detect cum instead of detect ectoplasm. Why does your device have a semen setting? That question has several answers, none of which you'd be comfortable with. All right, uh, I'm going to need a drink and to not see you guys for a few months. I'm, I'm leaving. I have a boner detector, too. <laughs> Just another day of Millennial Rewind. I need a drink and fuck off. I mean... <laughs> All right, and we're back. We start off with the Columbia Pictures logo that looks like it was drawn in crayon. <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's really fuzzy. The modern one, it's got like an actual woman standing in the clouds or whatever. This was just, they gave somebody's five-year-olds a box of crayons and said, here, go draw a lady with a a torch. Eh, I'll chalk it up to oils. We'll make it a little more classy. Is this where that review kicks in about the uh, 4K version being too grainy? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But I had a similar thought, like I mentioned it. I mean, it's an older DVD. I think this is probably like the, maybe the 20th anniversary or something like that. I forget. It's just in a sleeve case now. Anyway, I saw the Columbia logo and I was like, is this what DVD quality looks like? The rest of the movie was much better. Yeah. 
I saw this fucking logo and was ready for a bad time. I think just like that logo is just from that era is just that bad. So we have some very intense music and we have an exterior shot of the New York Public Library, which apparently just had some random elevated platform scaffolding going down the stairs. Maybe they were renovating it in the early 80s. I'm not sure what's going on there. And we have an old librarian lady doing old librarian lady stuff inside. I just want to reference the lions outside for a moment because it sweeps down and does a close-up of one of them, the iconic lions outside the library, pinning it for much, much later. Yes, they do mirror <laughs> a similar shot that they do later in the movie. That's that's a good eye. And so the librarian lady takes some books down into the stacks and a spooky book flying happens. Like right behind her, some books start flying across the shelves and she doesn't quite see it, but she gets a sense that something's going on down there. Yeah, my note here is this well-filled library doesn't have any homeless people snoring behind the stacks. It's interesting you say that and they still should be homeless people because <laughs> the exterior in the big reading room was New York, but um, this stacks was in LA. It's the LA Public Library. So yes, there definitely should be homeless <laughs> people lurking around. Or maybe this is the secret area where they don't let the homeless people go. <laughs> Who knows? You only saw her coming down the stairs. You didn't see the lock cage doors. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Multiple that she had to go through to get oh down there. <laughs> But I do want to also say that this uh, atmosphere building is flawless. It is really, oh, yeah. really good. And then she walks past some index card drawers. So for anybody who wasn't born in the 20th century, I think it's a legitimate thing to explain because we didn't have computers to like look up where on the shelves books were. You had to go flick you through had to go to the card catalog. You had to yeah. go to the card catalog and take it out. And that would tell you where on the shelves the books were. And they were basically, yeah, on all this information was on index cards. So much space, though, like so much space these things took up. And so they shoot open and the cards start shooting everywhere. This this gets spooky. It so freaks well the library. This was such an awesome and well done effect. But how many takes did you think they had to do? I feel so bad for the As PAs. A, and who had to clean up all the cards and reset them for every The take? prop people deserve some serious. Oh, my God. Props. <laughs> and and quick note for those who uh, might be curious, our librarian is also Ray Finkel's mother in Ace Ventura. Huh. Dan Marino should die of gonorrhea and rot in hell. <laughs> Would you like a cookie? <laughs> Uh, that, that, that's gotta be on the list at some point. <laughs> so she runs away and then screams at a super bright light that shines in her face. And we immediately get the Ghostbusters logo and hear the theme song because we need to start brainwashing the audience with the branding early and often. Damn right. My note here is librarian's reaction is the same as mine every time I'm reminded that Michael Bay has a career. Oh. <laughs> so that bright light was just like a CG building exploding. Exactly. Is what happens in the <laughs> That's a meteor from space right there. <laughs> but you're not supposed to look at the explosion. You have to walk away and look cool. <laughs> she didn't know that. That's why she screamed. The Ghostbusters theme takes us to, uh, we'll let you film at Columbia, but you better not use our name, University. Yes, that was actually the deal. <laughs> yeah. That literally was the deal. Yeah. Like, you could shoot here, but don't don't associate us with your bullshit paranormal stuff. Schmenyu, you know, that kind of university. <laughs> I, I think they saw Animal House and was like, shit, Reitman's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Batten down the hatches. <laughs> don't let them into the dining hall. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
So we go to the paranormal studies department, which there's no fucking way a universe. Well, maybe there was. I mean, some weird shit happened in the 60s. On the outside of the door, though, somebody scribbled in red, Dr. Venkman burn in hell. What the fuck was this detail? I don't know, but apparently it was originally more vulgar. Yeah, it was supposed to be more sexual. And they toned it down so the family could be more family friendly. Yeah, yeah. There was like, I don't know what was written, but there was a sex element to it. It, as Jules just said. Yeah, it, it doesn't pay off in any way, but it is a detail as we're establishing this scene. But speaking of details, this office is so weird. Yeah. Something I never noticed or remembered, the door has like a, a maid, please make up this room from a hotel on the doorknob. Is that supposed to be their like experiment in progress notification? <laughs> Entirely possible or it's just a There's goofy... Marilyn Monroe giant-sized pinups inside on the wall. <laughs> Just weird ass posters. The setup for Venkman, just in total, it, it's a pervy professor investigating the paranormal using questionable experimentation with electroshock. This is like the worst way you could set up any kind of protagonist. Well, this moment is based on the uh, Milgram obedience experiment. Right. And for anyone not familiar, it was someone was told they're being that they're going to be administering a test on like memory and learning. And whenever the other person got it wrong, answer they would give him an electric shock but milgram's experiment had no actual shocks <laughs> yeah no they're, they just use this as a basis of the idea so hold on let me get there okay <laughs> and I'm, this is for people who don't know um, <laughs> as jules mentioned there were no actual shocks you couldn't see the person quote-unquote being shocked what they were actually testing was there's someone else in there with a the lab coat and when they got uncomfortable about this person screaming and agony they're like no continue the test yeah and the test was to see how far they could push it and how far they could push someone's obedience. And the filmmakers for this said part of the parallel was, how far can we push the audience into still liking this guy? Oh my God. Because <laughs> it starts off with him shocking one kid and blatantly hitting on another. And I had no idea what was really going on as a kid. So I thought this scene was funny. I just knew Vinkman didn't like the boy for some reason. And he spat out his gum when he got shocked. And that was funny. And I just thought it was great. For anyone, yeah, I don't think we've established this. Uh, Dr. Venkman is played by Bill Murray. I'm just going to go with the names because like, this is such yep. an iconic cast. Yep. So he's Bill Murray, Dr. Venkman. For a lot of people, the character is as iconic as the actor. I'm going to go with the actor on this one. So basically, this he's doing this experiment to test his subject's psychic abilities, so-called psychic abilities. And he's got a really hot blonde girl there that he definitely wants to hook up with. And there's just this regular college student dude who he's got strapped to this shocking machine and every time the guy gets something wrong he shows him the card he shows him that he fucked up shocks him and then for the blonde girl who he's trying to get with she's getting it wrong too but he doesn't show anybody the card that's oh my gosh you got another one right amazing you're so super psychic <laughs> and when the when the kid gets it right he also shocks him yeah <laughs> he just doesn't show him what the card is but he's just like i'm sorry dude i don't know what's wrong with you but <laughs> <laughs> what puts the cherry on it is that at the very end of this, the kid said he didn't know that there would be electric shocks. Yes, so yes. the kid could have had a heart condition and he would be full on killing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, kid. part of the ethical guidelines for experiments is you're supposed to give them all this sort of information. And Bill Murray's retort is, we're paying you, right? And the kid gets pissed off and walks out and goes, you can keep your five bucks. <laughs> yeah, we're paying you five bucks and we five get to shock bucks. you. <laughs> I mean, I remember, I studied psychology at university too briefly, and I remember some of the experiments were a little hardcore. Like one I did was you couldn't eat for 12 hours beforehand and you had to do, and you couldn't have any stimulants and you drank a beverage before doing cognitive tests and I'm pretty sure that eliminated breakfast for me for the next two years <laughs> but something like this was just and it was yeah there was a bit of money involved it was like but it was still 50 quid <laughs> I mean, was... 50 quid for that kind of thing yeah maybe so Bill Murray as after this guy student storms out goes over gets really handsy with the blonde girl and tells her that you know people like the dude are gonna be jealous of her abilities and she's gotta you know get used to that and then dead Aykroyd bursts in. He did not pay attention to the maid sign. No, no, he did not. My note here is, whoa, whoa, I didn't know Dan Aykroyd was in this picture. <laughs> ah, yeah. I see what you did there. And he's very excited. He's like packing up equipment and he tells Bill Murray that there's been an incident at the library and they, they need to get down there. Bill Murray's like, dude, I'm trying to fucking get laid here. Like, get the fuck out of here. And Dan Aykroyd's like, nope, nope, gotta go, gotta go. And Bill Murray's like, ah, oh, goddammit. Makes a date with the blonde girl. Yeah, let's meet tonight. And she says, at eight o'clock, he's like, eight o'clock, you read my mind. Like, you're such a natural psychic we never see her again nope bye later blonde lady so now we meet uh harold ramus plays dr spengler the kind of the socially inept or just not even he just doesn't care about appropriate social interactions our first image of him is him listening to a table in the reading room of the library with his paranormal stethoscope device i love this thing so Bill Murray, like, he clearly just does, doesn't believe it goes like... Yeah, he's the cynic of the group. Okay, Yeah, he's so, the cynic so of the group. Bill Murray is the cynic of the group. He doesn't really believe in the stuff. He doesn't really care. He's just kind of in it for, I guess, for kicks, maybe to get some women. Dan Aykroyd is the wide-eyed true believer who comes across kind of like a little kid or that overeager puppy, really. So that's Ray stance. And then Egon is just... The cold scientist. He's the cold scientist. He's he's looking for the data and the facts and, and has no social skills whatsoever. The opening exchange that he has, you know, with Bill Murray where he says, yeah, do you remember that time you tried to drill a hole in your head? And Harold Ramis replies, that would have worked if you hadn't stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted to bring this up too. One, that was a great improv line by Ramus. Oh, it was improvised. <laughs> oh my goodness. His response was improvised, but Bill Murray's line was scripted because it was in reference to a canceled experiment. There was a guy who was doing uh, language experiments and considered drilling holes to better view the brain to look for development. <laughs> But that stage of the experiment never happened. Science pre-1975 <laughs> This is, is just... why you get the DVD, people. <laughs> for all these little extra bits. I tried. I tried, goddammit. But, but that and I had started a tally when that came up, but uh, that and Milgram were the only two actual experiments referenced in the movie. So we have a total count of two. So Bill Murray interviews the librarian who saw the ghost. She's just lying on a table. You know, so shocked was she by her experience. He asks her the regular questions you know, history of mental illness in the family, substance abuse, you know, all these good things. Menstruation. Yeah. Then he asked her, okay, uh, so are you menstruating right now? Because, you know, bitches be crazy when it's that time of the month. You know, they see things. (laughs) And this guy, he's like the manager of the library or something. The guy who walks him back there. He has the perfect face for, ew, girls icky. And he's like, what does that have to do with it? (laughs) 
oh, that's how you took that? I took that as kind of the the appropriate response. Like, yeah, dude, that's got nothing to do with anything. Why are you asking such a ridiculous question? I didn't get the... He's not like, dude, what are you doing? He's just grossed out because they use that word. <laughs> Okay. That's how I took it. And Bill Murray's like, please, man, I'm a scientist. Like, let me do my thing. (laughs) Jesus, what an asshole. (laughs) He's such an asshole. He is such an asshole. And yet we love him. We love him. And like, he at least has one redeeming moment because if he did not have this redeeming moment later in the film, he he has a couple, but yeah. So Harold Ramis reads on his handheld device that the ghost is moving and they have to leave the lady. They go down into the stacks and they see a giant stack of books like six feet tall. And Harold Ramis and Dad Ackroyd. Oh, more think, than that. This is like floor to ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. Really high stack of books. And Harold Ramis and Dad Ackroyd think it's related to ghost activity. And Bill Murray sarcastic says, yeah, humans never, never stack books. It's not a thing people do. One of my favorite lines from Dan Aykroyd. Listen, do you you smell something? something? (laughs) (laughs) This entire movie is unbelievably quotable. I've been quoting so much of it just my entire life. So then they find the index card drawers covered in cum. I'm sorry, uh, ectoplasmic (laughs) residue. Sorry, I always get those two mixed up. It's too transparent. I mean, it depends how much water you're drinking. It's the right amount of viscous, though. <laughs> also depends Shit, on how much water you're right drinking. Amount. <laughs> <laughs> Meg Bored when he jacks off is, is the source of so much science. <laughs> so much science. <laughs> Call my apartment the lab. Harold Ramis tells Bill Murray to get a sample, uh, but Bill Murray gets it all over his hands and has the appropriate reaction to having ghosts come. Yes, but the complete not giving a shit of getting a sample. Like, this thing is dripping from these things. All you have to do is, like, hold the Petri dish under your collect lot. He's, like, scraping the tops of the cards with this <laughs> thing. And then we get to, in my opinion, probably the best jump scare from any movie ever. It's the one that makes me smile. I hate jump scares so much, but the upcoming jump scare is my favorite. Well, Jules, since you love it so much, why don't, why don't you describe it for the folks at home? Well, as Bill Murray hands the, uh, as he calls, mucus over to Ray, the book stack Beyond. behind them full on collapse and lands right on their heels. Oh, yes. The, the, the entire bookshelf just falls down. Yes, that was that was a good one. And then Harold Ramis's device starts beeping loudly and they turn a corner and they see an old lady ghost reading a book. I guess a, a previous librarian. And Bill Murray tries to talk to her and she just goes, shh. Well, there's a brilliant moment where Fankman says, so what do we do? And they have no idea. <laughs> yeah. It's like the dog that caught the car. It's like, shit, what do I do with this now? <laughs> Yeah, they retreat to go around the corner. It's like, okay, uh, so what, what the fuck are we doing, guys? And Dad Aykroyd's like, okay, cool. We're just going to walk up to it and just jump it. Yeah, but he, he does it with, I've got a plan. <laughs> and so after regrouping, they just fucking charge direct. It's 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 the shadow telling Chan, what's, whatever the fuck his name is, the, the other dog, when they're hunting oh, the when, rabbit. Oh, yeah. tells Chance how to hunt. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it's literally just attack it from the front in full view of your prey. And so she turns around to the three guys coming up to her and looks like she drank from the wrong holy grail. Yes. <laughs> That's <laughs> what she turns into. Looking remarkably similar to how I look these days after three beers and a shot of tequila. <laughs> and this scared the 
fuck out of little me. Yeah, I can see that. Little me was scared, but at the same time, incredibly intrigued. Yeah, when you're five, six years old, this is the most amazing goddamn thing on the planet. Exactly. And I, I say some CGI that's absolutely fantastic. There is no CGI. It did not exist. Yeah. Special effects. Special yeah. effects, yeah. So the, the optical effects on this ghost are amazing. It's phenomenal. So they run out of the library, and that library manager from earlier runs out. It's like, what was it? And Bill Murray turns around and says, we'll, we'll get back to you. They will not get back and to him. And as they run out <laughs> terrified, there's this bouncy piano music. Yeah. And all I could think of was like, man, I'm super keen on this swell beat. Let's get a malt and dance on the counter. <laughs> it's very much that vibe. Absolutely. Oh, my God. But let me tell you, eight-year-old me was very appreciative of that music because had it been ominous, I would have as been like, Yeah, maybe it, like light, you know, it gave you the this is supposed to still be funny sort exactly, of thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So back at not Columbia, uh, Bill Murray makes fun of Dan Aykroyd for his stupid plan. Thank you, somebody on screen making fun of his dumb plan. And Dan Aykroyd just says, like, look, I was excited about making contact with ghosts. I wasn't thinking straight, you know. And Harold Ramis says that based off of his readings, he thinks they might be able to catch one. Put a pin in that. Yeah, not sure how he came to that conclusion after meeting a ghost, but okay. Something I didn't get. What was with Bill Murray handing a flyer to Egon? No, he did not have him a flyer he hands him a crunch bar yeah I, it's never really um, i couldn't even see explained, it but he's he's impressed by egon and says that you know he's gonna take back some of the stuff and then rewards him with a nestle crunch bar i never understood this <laughs> me either but nestle crunch was one of my favorite fucking candy bars as a kid i think <laughs> the product placement worked on me and it just implanted him little nerd Johnson. like i said i didn't even know what it was i was <laughs> so as product placement well, it goes is, it didn't it is register. upside down. It is upside down. So. <laughs> Bill Murray doesn't do second takes for product placement. This movie does not go out of its way to explain its in-world science. It's just like, dude, it's fucking ghosts. Just go with it. It's <laughs> pretty much the, the underlying philosophy of the film. I actually kind of enjoyed that for the most part. Yeah, I love that about this movie is when, when they use terms, especially like little acronyms or whatever, they don't explain what it means. Exactly. Like we've mentioned, every movie in the 90s had to explain what an EMP blast was they had to explain what a gps is and when they start like we've got pkg and no one fucking explains what pkg yeah they just is. they just sort of get on with movie and it's yeah. it's actually really fantastic because then people well at least kids love to go into the lore and figure out exactly how this stuff works and you can have some fun and and you also don't have that element of as you already know like why the hell yeah. would would egon explain to ray what this acronym means yeah exactly like they, they're, they're scientists they've got this shorthand so they arrive back at their office and and it's being packed up by dudes listening to Walkman. <laughs> What else are you going to do to get through the day? <laughs> and this Dean rant is absolutely legit. Yeah, so there's a Dean there. And, and, and he, the only reason why he's comes across as a bad guy is because they told the actor to play this as if you're a bad guy. His reasons for kicking them out of the university, as Jill said, are completely legit. He tells them they're getting thrown out of the university because science is supposed to help people. And what they've been doing is clearly bullshit. Like all the things they've been funding have amounted to nothing. If this weren't a fantasy, 
fantasy world, these would be probably three or four of the most dangerous people in the world. <laughs> oh, yeah, because Bill Murray, he basically got this cushy academic job and does bullshit science just for a paycheck and to have something to do during the day. He's not a legit scientist. And to get chicks. Yep. And to get chicks. Yeah, yep. he wants to have sex with his students. And to perv and deliver electric shocks to students. It's... <laughs> Yeah, so they, he, you know, this deed plays the bad guy, but he's not a bad guy. He, this is a completely rational response to everything they've been doing. You're the dean of the university. Here's your cat and an apple to eat as you deliver your lines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Please stroke it menacingly. No, no, the cat, not the apple. What the fuck, dude? Anyway. You stroke the cat and eat the apple or the other way around. <laughs> Take a big bite out of the cat. I mean, it's not Alf. It's not Alf. <laughs> so outside, uh, Dan Aykroyd is lamenting that this is going to completely screw up his career in academia. He says that working in the private sector sucks. And uh, I agree, it does. So Bill Murray, who's just drinking out of a small bottle of whiskey or something. I spent way too much time trying to figure out what this was he was drinking. I came up with nothing. <laughs> Some sort of brown alcohol. And he says that this was destiny and that they should go into business for themselves. Dan Aykroyd mentions that the containment technology that Harold Ramis has been talking about is really expensive. And how are they going to get the money? And Bill Murray, who's just kind of like wiggle dancing while drinking in front of <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, is like, I don't know. <laughs> just... I love that they just make such terrible business decisions. As so well. Bill Murray obviously gets him drunk because they're passing the bottle back and forth during this. And then he's like mortgaged his parents home or put it on the market or something. I, it's like yeah. a third mortgage or something. Well, Murray says like everyone's got three mortgages. Don't worry. And then Egon tells him what the interest rate alone would like would amount to like almost a hundred thousand dollars. Never change, time. Egon. Never change. Yeah, they say they're going to go to business together. They take out this third mortgage on Dan Aykroyd's childhood home and there has been no meaningful discussion at least that we've seen about what their business is and how they <laughs> intend to make money. It's just, just mortgage your house, dude. We'll figure it out. Egon's got the data that he can trap a ghost and we need money to build the thing to do it and let's get Ray drunk and have him put the house up for sale. <laughs> and so they come out at Dan Aykroyd, they come out of the bank after getting the loan and Dan Aykroyd's freaking out because he's just mortgage his childhood home at 19% interest and he's mad at Bill Murray for not having negotiated the rate down. It's like, hey dude, this is your house you're mortgaging. Maybe you say something, you know? Raise a child. He doesn't know these things. He does get a say in a second because apparently the, uh, the property that they buy is bought on the basis of a fireman's pole. Yes, we are, we are just about there. <laughs> but Bill Murray's like, don't worry guys, we're gonna make a killing off of this ghost thing you know the franchising yes, alone we're gonna franchise the shit out of this it's gonna be great we're gonna be so rich and so now they're looking at buying an abandoned firehouse at their base of operations and again because the, the filming of this movie is split between new york and la the exteriors are of course a firehouse in new york city but the interiors were a firehouse in los angeles Yes, and it was actually run down in derelict. And so these scenes where they're walking through with the real estate agent and everything looks like shit was as is. When they got the property to film in, this is how it looked. And then the art department had to come in and clean the fuck up and <laughs> repaint stuff and get it ready for now we're in business and operating. So yeah, this place is a dump and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray are walking around with a real estate agent and they're trying to use the fact this place is 
a dump to their advantage. They're trying to nag the real estate agent into lowering the price. Yeah, Ramus even has the line, because it's, what do you think, Egon? He's like, I think it should be condemned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the load-bearing poles are warped, and the electrics are shot, and the yeah. The neighborhood's like a demilitarized zone. The neighborhood's like a demilitarized zone. And then Dan Aykroyd slides down the fireman pole like a giddy nine-year-old and says that they should buy the place. It just completely fucks up the negotiations. He is a kid. He is a kid who's found the cool thing. Hey, does this pole work? Slides down. And he's running up the stairs, obviously, to go slide down the pole again, which is something I totally would have done. Just basically the worst (laughs) businessman in the entire world. And, and then, brilliant. guys, we should we should spend the night here, you know, <laughs> yeah. see how well it fits. How, Let's have like, a sleepover. And, and the real estate lady comes walking up like, oh, I got this. The <laughs> grin on her face is oh, amazing. Yeah. Just got you, motherfuckers. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> and Bill Murray defeated looks at her and says, I think we'll take it. <laughs> And so we get our first look now at the evil building that's going to be kind of the central location in this film. Beautiful matte painting. Beautiful matte painting. This building definitely does not exist actually in New York City. We see Sigourney Weaver getting out of a cab with some groceries because New York City, that's apparently what they do there. There's a brief shot in between where it hangs for a moment, like looking down from the top of the building on the street and you can kind of see part of one of the dog statues oh yes 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 that is also a painting get the fuck out of here that is incredible that is also a painting it's it's not a miniature that they put in the shot or something that is a fucking painting that's what i mean by there is some amazingly good amazingly good stuff in this i legit thought that was a piece of set deck Sigourney Weaver is now walking down her hall, uh, where she's intercepted by her neighbor, Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis! <laughs> I'm telling you, the, it, it's so good. I, it's physical comedy, actually verbal comedy, is so good in this. It still makes me laugh my ass off. It really does. <laughs> so he plays a socially inept accountant who's her neighbor, who doesn't get the hint that she finds him annoying. <laughs> she's very nice to him, but he's just... He's he so pop- infatuated with her, though. Yeah. He just doesn't see it he just he just wants to impress her he wants to be there for her. he wants to be the nice guy he's trying to be the smooth neighbor who yeah i totally work out and uh <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that he's wearing <laughs> he's wearing some crazy tracksuit and he talks about how but like it's high water pants where you can <laughs> see his socks and everything because he's a nerd. Oh, Jesus. He talks about how, yeah, he, he has this workout video that's 20 minutes, but he plays it twice the speed, so he finishes it in 10. <laughs> and how he only drinks, like, you know, special mineral water and all sorts of health foods. Like, he, he, he works out. He keeps healthy. Yeah, but he's still a nerd accountant, so everything is about efficiency and making, you know, cost effective. So even his workouts, I watch it at high speed. Ah, oh, so funny. But he, so he invites her to a party that he's having at his place and she's like yeah maybe uh maybe you'll stop by men are the worst <laughs> yeah 
And also, apparently, somebody had complained, one of the neighbors, that her, she had left her TV on, which is strange, because she doesn't really remember doing that. And so she walks into her apartment, and- And the TV's not on? It is, it actually. It is on. I can hear it. It is on, and it's playing that the first Ghostbusters commercial but where like, they- you should be able to hear it when she opens the door, and you don't. Oh, I did. Not when they're still talking there at the hall, and she just opens oh, the door. Oh. You don't hear it. Later, when she's in the apartment, it's on, but there could have been a time jump there. The door gets slammed on Rick Moranis and he walks back to his apartment and realizes he's locked out. Yes. One of the best running gags. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> running gag where he keeps getting locked out of his own apartment. Yeah. So inside, the TV is on and it's playing a commercial from the Ghostbusters on local TV that they made for $5. Which later was used as an actual commercial. For the film? The phone number was different. They set up an 800 line for... For people to actually call in the film had already come out was getting a bit of popularity but yeah and so then they released this as just a aired during commercial breaks oh that's Amazing. brilliant i love that and so she starts unpacking her groceries. But I just have to comment on this apartment because we learn that she is a cellist for an orchestra at the Lincoln Center. Yes, How in the actual fuck does she afford this apartment? This is crazier than the Friends people because at least the Friends people is like, oh yeah, it's my aunt's apartment. And there was three of them living there. You yeah. Know? Yeah, this is a massive loft apartment. And on the, the little fact bar track that I was watching this with, it was like, a lot of people have commented that it would be impossible for a struggling cellist to afford an apartment like like this but then they leave it like they don't try to offer an explanation for how it works it's just a lot of people said this wouldn't work there you go it is madness <laughs> that she's able to afford this like her living room is bigger than my studio apartment like, it is crazy but they needed the room to be able to hide all of the effects people <laughs> that's, yeah. and you know and get all the crew in there that's really what, the, what it happened but some of the upcoming moments again feel so iconic they are very oh, iconic absolutely so Sigourney Weaver goes into her kitchen. She starts unpacking her groceries. And I feel like a fucking idiot because I have seen this movie several times. This is the first time I noticed that there's a bag of Stay Puft Stay marshmallows. Yes. I've seen this movie at least half a dozen times. I had never noticed this before. I am yep. clearly blind. They created a bag of Stay Puft marshmallows just to drop that hint. Like Nick said, you, you hardly can even notice it, but it is there. Actually, pretty prominently. Like they angle it where, because it's right next to the carton of eggs yeah i mean they they angle it so that you can see it but it's you got to be kind of looking for it because you got to be kind of looking for it and the fact that it's not an actual brand it's like oh that's just something they made up and you don't really process it even after the the big finale so right because now because what's going on is as jules mentioned is one of the most iconic scenes of the movie where her carton of eggs that she's laid on the counter opens itself and the eggs start kamikazeing onto the they start cooking themselves they start cooking themselves on the counter which is crazy they hop out of the shells yeah splat on the counter and start cooking fucking amazing her reaction isn't freaked out. I mean, it's freaked out, but it's more concerned. It's like, hey, eggs aren't supposed to do that. And then <laughs> she notices the light coming from her fridge. Not only that, her fridge starts growling. There's a, a low growl coming from her fridge. And that's when she ran away because it would be absolutely ridiculous to look inside a growling fridge <laughs> while your eggs are cooking themselves on your counter. Just kidding. She looks inside her fucking growling fridge. 
fridge. <laughs> My note here is, why is she surprised by a demon dog in her fridge? I thought she was a New Yorker. I know. <laughs> she looks inside. <laughs> and in this fridge, this like g- giant, it's like a TARDIS in her fridge, except inside is a space with a pyramid and clouds inhabited by a demon looking thing with a light in its mouth that says Zool. And now she screams and runs away. Like the, the, her threshold for bull, like crazy shit has finally been reached. Second part of the movie that scared the shit out of five-year-old <laughs> <laughs> But this is the only moment that those dogs scared me. And every time I watch it, I hated the fridge moment. But later in the movie, I didn't have a problem with them. Yeah, for me, it wasn't the fridge moment, but there was one later scene that really creeped out the crap out of me, but we'll get to it. <laughs> See, I think, John, for this one, it's because the demon dog thing is in silhouette, so it's a little creepier. Once you actually see the thing, kind of the mystery is is dissolved. Maybe that has something to do with well, it. Well, yeah, because there is another moment that freaked me out, and it's it has to do with the dogs, but also not seeing anyway. So back at Ghostbusters headquarters, Bill Murray is overseeing the hanging of a handwritten sign on the outside and john i think this is where you're mentioning that they had to shoot different signs because they were still trying to get the rights to the movie yeah for some reason there was a problem with the name ghostbusters and using it couldn't figure out why and so they had multiple signs made one was ghost smashers and uh they had ghost stoppers was almost the uh title as well dan Aykroyd shows up in a used hearse it's so iconic, this car. Like a it's 50s so good. hearse that for some reason has a siren on it. Apparently, Dan Aykroyd paid $4,800 for this beater because he t- starts listing off a litany of parts that need to be replaced. It would have been faster if he'd have just said what's right with the car. It's that he got a great deal on it and it's so cheap, but you need to replace like literally everything. Exactly. It's so funny. Brakes, brake pads. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't pay $4,800 for this in today's dollars. Like, holy shit. (laughs) Inside, Bill Murray walks past Janine, their secretary, who could not give fewer fucks if she tried. Yeah, Janine is the best. Annie Potts is amazing in this role. She is so good. So she has those big 80s glasses on. Mm-hmm. And apparently those were from somebody in the costume tour. Those were their actual glasses. And she got the part <laughs> at the last minute. So they threw together an outfit for her and she just put on the glasses and she just wore the glasses for the rest of the movie. So this poor, I guess, set deck or costumeer had to give up their glasses every time Eddie Potts was filming. Oh, my God. But they really make her character as well. They really do. Yeah, because she's just sitting at the front desk reading a People magazine. You know, have there been any calls? No. Any messages? No. Any business of any kind? No. And I don't know why she has such a shitty attitude. My (laughs) dream job is getting paid to sit around and do nothing and read magazines. Yeah, and and Bill Murray, at the end of this exchange, is like, it's a great job, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, do something, will you? You're paying for it. I mean, it, it makes sense later like you don't really have a big sense of how much time this movie takes i think it's supposed to be maybe a couple months max but they get super popular and super busy and so there's later scenes where she's complaining about having too much to do and not enough help yes and she's just jaded as 
fuck. <laughs> I mean, I mean, from the get go, she's jaded as fuck. Like, oh yeah, but it gets worse. It does. <laughs> and then Harold Ramis emerges from under her desk. What the fuck is he doing under there? Okay, he is basically being the IT guy because he comes out and mentions how, like, he's filling with computer printer type whatever. He's trying to get stuff set up. There's an implication there though of him clawing out under the desk that I didn't get. And there was a romance plot that severely got cut down of him being always oblivious and her always trying to yeah janine and egon through to him yeah. love love story was the sort of hidden element that that really didn't develop much but i kind of yeah. liked it i thought it was fun yeah like where she tries to talk with him she tries to flirt with him you know and these are my hobbies and what are your hobbies i cloak spores molds and fungus <laughs> <laughs> he is the oh, best this is why is so egon deadpan. was such a good so well performed and such a well-written character <laughs> and while asking him about his hobbies, he asks her, she asks him whether or not he reads. And his answer to this is, print is dead. Egon predicts life. He really does. <laughs> print isn't dead for another 30, 40 years, dude. Chill the fuck out. It's 1984. <laughs> But now with the internet, I'd say people are reading more than ever because everywhere you go, you're reading the web pages, you're reading emails, you're reading your texts. Yeah. There is a lot of reading. <laughs> no, but print. Right. So Sigourney Weaver walks in and uh, gives a very understandably skeptical look of the place. <laughs> she walks past Dad Aykroyd just working on the car. By working on the car, he's like splayed out inside the engine block. Smoking. <laughs> <Working>. Smoking. <laughs> Back when cigarettes were accepted. Yeah, and... part of this movie is brought to you by smoking. It's true. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd is brought to you by smoking, yes. for sure. And so Bill Murray sees her walk in, you know, talking to Janine. Janine's like, you know, hey, can I, how can I help you? He literally jumps over the dividing skirting where his office is, where Janine is, because he's immediately got the hots for Sigourney Weaver. Fun fact, there was absolutely no safety for him. So if he would have tripped up, and it's a hell of a jump. It's a hell of a jump, and he kind of like, catches his foot or taps it or something yeah as he's going over it's not a clean jump either it's a hell of a jump and if you know if he would have fallen over it he would have severely hurt himself so this this was bill murray doing a full epic hurdle in the movie with absolutely no safety procedures so i very much appreciated this so as she's kind of explaining what happened, they've Harold Ramis has got her wired up to this machine that shows you her head through predator vision, essentially yes. <laughs> pixelated predator vision. Um, it's we see her head uh, pin in that 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 has a callback later. She talks about you know with the eggs and what happened to her fridge. And Bill Murray's line here is great. He says, "Yeah, generally don't see that kind of behavior in a major appliance." So many good. Yeah, Venkman continues to perv. Poor ugly people never get attention i think it's the real no. injustice of the world yeah because sigourney weaver is yeah she's 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 very hot especially awesome. in this film things that again young me miss but you rewatch older and like oh my god because he gets up to talk about you know oh we have standard procedures for this sort of thing and i should go to her apartment and everything he gets up and walks behind her so that he can mug at the other guys of like hey do me a solid here <laughs> <laughs> yes he does so basically she hasn't been back to her apartment in two days. Bill Murray's like, hey, yeah, I'm going to go back to her apartment and check her out. I mean, I'm going to go with her and check out her 
apartment. Ad-libbed. Ad- <laughs> that doesn't raise any red flags or not enough of a red flag where she's like, actually, no, I'm going to take the guy who isn't obviously trying to have sex with me back to my apartment. But she is on to him. She is on to him. Yeah. Yeah. But thus begins Bill Murray's um, stalking. Yeah. So basically, Dan Aykroyd, he says, I'm going to go check out the Hall of Records, see if there's anything going crazy with your building. And Bill Murray, going back to the apartment with Sigourney Weaver, and Harold Ramis is going to figure out what the heck's going on with the Zool thing is. Yeah, he's got his own research he's going to look into. And this scene is brought to you by Cheez-Its and Budweiser, because it's 1984 and drinking on the job is apparently still socially acceptable. They're just drinking beer throughout this initial interview slash scanning. One of the things I will bring up is that when they do interview Sigourney Weaver, they suddenly become skeptical of everything she says, whereas later on, they become completely unskeptical of what people say. (laughs) It's a little inconsistent in terms of how thorough they are with real cases versus not real cases. And this is their first client. Yeah, exactly. They they met the library ghost and then you have someone walk in saying all this stuff and it's like, okay, we need to check this out and, you know, let's do this proper. And then a little bit later, they've gone through a lot. There's a whole montage sequence of them catching a shitload of ghosts. So. Yeah, yeah, but when the call comes in for their first job, they all leap into their outfits and slide down the pole and burst out with their car. But apparently for their first client, they just extremely Well, this was a (laughs) walk-in. This was a walk-in. Should have made an appointment. So now we're back at Sigourney Weaver's apartment. And uh, Bill Murray is kind of putting on a show about investigating the apartment. He's kind of hamming up this investigation. He's got some sort of device. And what the fuck is this device? It's like a- Yeah, he's still that cynic asshole at this point. He still doesn't really... Again, he's seen a fucking ghost before already. You got chased out of a library, my dude. Like, skepticism time is over. But he's got this weird rod penis pump box. It looks like he's, you know, uh, spraying for ants with this device. (laughs) But apparently it's supposed to give him readings. Yeah, it's one of those things they never explain. She asks about it and are you sure you're even using that thing correctly? (laughs) Yeah. He's just waving this wand and I'm pumping. It's it's the little bulb that they use for when they take your blood pressure. Yeah. You know, he's using this little bulb. And he goes up to her piano, plays like two keys really rapidly. It says, oh yeah, they hate that. Yeah, ghosts, I'm coming for you yep just putting on a show just being a dick fishes for info to determine that she's actually single because you know that's that's important for what he's actually there to do and Sigourney Weaver's character does call him out which is good and enjoyable yeah she tells him that you know hey you don't act like a scientist you act more like a game show host which is accurate kind of spot on actually yeah her little addition that was her line they originally had the cliche used car salesman line Uh. and she's like no no that's not quite right (laughs) That's not Bill Murray. Sigourney Weaver rules. She does. must be yes. shared with the world. <laughs> I will say that I, because my favorite role of hers is Aliens, yeah. Ripley, specifically the Ripley she played in Aliens, mm-hmm. seeing her kind of play the perved on love interest slash damsel in distress. It's a little irritating at times. Yeah. It was. It's like, this is not my, like, it's, she's great in the role, but it's not my favorite because I've seen her be such a badass. Yeah, yeah. And it's something they toned down a lot because they got her. She was just supposed to be the girl in the movie basically you know the one who needs save and they tone it down and developed 
her and gave her more character and the because they're like oh shit it's sigourney weaver is interested <laughs> okay that's good yeah because like originally her character was supposed to be a model and she's yep. like no make her a cellist because you know that, that's a bit more cerebral i think honestly all hollywood movies would benefit if they just said we have to make the female characters like more for sigourney weaver i think that would improve yes. pretty much 90 percent <laughs> of movies agreed so they finally make their way into the kitchen shows off the fried eggs on the counter and that kitchen must stink by now because <laughs> it's it's two days old fried egg is not <laughs> that's not gonna smell good and so bilberry investigates the fridge and his reaction is look at all this junk food because there is no interdimensional porthole to demon dogs and this fridge is brought to you by coke this fridge is brought to you by coca-cola perrier water oscar meyer and wishbone salad dressing <laughs> uh i'm gonna say not oscar meyer because he takes out the oscar meyer lunch meat and says you really eat this crap <laughs> <laughs> that's good product placement where the actors are full on ripping on everything As I, all press is good press yeah. <laughs> and even though it's turned sideways i swear that's a jar of uh smucker strawberry jam entirely i know possible. that fucking label <laughs> <laughs> so no crazy stuff is happening in the fridge uh, bilberry is not getting any readings on his penis pump and sigourney weaver concludes that there's either a monster in the fridge or she's going crazy and bilberry's like i don't think you're crazy but there's definitely no animals living in there <laughs> and sigourney weaver gives him the middle finger look it's yes. so great. Yes. So back in the living room, Bill Murray just drops all pretenses of being professional and just says, I'm madly in love with you. Oh, it's so And Sigourney Weaver quite rightly tells him to get the fuck out. It's like, no, dude, I hired you to like deal with my crazy spooky fridge problems. Stop hitting on me. Sigourney Weaver's character spends so much time just getting pervy guys out of her apartment or keeping them out of her apartment. It's... I mean, I get it. Sigourney Weaver's hot as fuck, but like, Jesus, some sort of professionalism, please. And so Bill Murray, then you know as he's like going guys like oh you just think i'm a geek i'm elizabeth he's like you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna prove myself to you by solving your problem and then you're gonna love me and sadly this is foreshadowing yeah yeah because it's still such a horrible thing to like say and do <laughs> yeah and still pulls like the refuse to leave thing she's like okay yeah okay uh-huh bye bye and then he like half forces himself back in the door to keep talking to her she's like get out and then Lewis emerges just to put the cherry on it. And those, my note here was just wait for your turn to perv. Yeah, Rick Moranis is just in the hallway awkwardly mulling about. Like, was he listening in on what was going on there? Is Always. he stalking Stagorny? Yes. Like, what? But him getting locked out again made me laugh, so. <laughs> so back at Ghostbusters headquarters, the scientists are having dinner, uh, Chinese takeout and Budweiser, dinner of champions. Budweiser, the beer you buy when your startup is out of petty cash. And in the real world, you know, when they toast the last of the petty cash, this is where their business fails and they all end up with rife with debt. And, um, and, and it's quite sad, really. I didn't remember the movie taking that turn, but uh, it is what it is. And so Bill Murray, yeah, the reason why we bring up petty cash is because Bill Murray's like, hey, you know, we got this client and we don't want to lose her and i need some of the petty cash to take her out to dinner and they're like well no we use the last of the petty cash on dinner here so that's it and janine who apparently sleeps under her desk <laughs> that's where she lives <laughs> gets a phone call there's a phone call to the main ghostbusters line and she gets up and it's the their first client She's like what where you know okay and again i love how excited she is at this point <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like 9 p.m. She's been yeah, like, why is she still there? I don't get it. Why is this 100% not a prank call? I mean, all of the stuff they did with, you know, checking Dana out, but they get one call from someone who claims to be from a hotel about whether it's serious. How are they not doubtful that this isn't a prank? I think there have been because there's a few answers, you know, it's like Ghostbusters. Yes, they're for real. Yes, they're serious, you know, and apparently people are just really honest and so be like, okay. Okay, good. Well, so am I. In New York City, yeah. I mean, how yeah, many? Yeah, in New York City, yes. nobody's fucking with anybody else. <laughs> no. The most no. realistic part of this film. <laughs> And so she hits the alarm because they're up in the kitchen eating their food and we finally get pulled out for a wider shot. And did you guys notice the the arcade cabinets on the back wall? I couldn't tell what they were, but yeah, there's two arcade cabinets and a pinball machine. Okay, so guys, when we set up our podcasting headquarters <laughs> in a remodeled fire station, we are absolutely <laughs> having video game cabinets in the break room slash kitchen. I'm just letting you know now that that's what's happening when we get our place. I already know what the setup's going to be like. Okay, good. And a proton pack. Oh, I mean, absolutely. We're going to get the, those toys we were to It's like, yeah, did- but the toy one with the little Nerf thing, and we're going to have to spend $5,000 to get the fucker off eBay or something. <laughs> So they slide down the pole, grab their gear because it's go time. And God, Bill Murray, he grabs a box of fucking Chinese food and chopsticks. And he's still, he is still so not into this. <laughs> he doesn't give. And I think that was just, that's just Bill Murray. And every time I've seen Bill, Bill Murray just doesn't give a fuck that he's in a movie ever. He's doing this essentially the same performance that he did in Space Jam. He's just a sarcastic actor who's like, yeah, I'm in a movie, so the fuck what? <laughs> um, I'd say he cares more in this. If if one of these guys sucked down, got sucked down an interdimensional hole, he'd at least try and figure out what happened. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, he slides <laughs> down the pole with a box of Chinese food and chopsticks in his mouth because I guess he's going to just keep noshing on the way to the job. And the car is now fixed. It's the iconic white with red highlights Ghostbusters mobile with the stuff on the roof. And its own weird siren, the iconic sound of a siren. Yeah, how is it legal for these guys to have a siren? I don't know, but <laughs> they were part of the fact, around the commentary and stuff, they were mentioned how um, because they had this car with the lights and the siren, they got away with so much shit. <laughs> and then they got out and like, not not everyone would, was recognizing the guys immediately, but, you know, or maybe it was their stand-ins or whatever, but these people, they had uniforms on, they had their equipment, they had the flashing lights, and so they could just go places. They're like, yeah, we got away with a lot less shit in the sequel. People <laughs> recognize the car and the outfits. Yeah. So they arrive at a swanky hotel. Uh, so this hotel is in Los Angeles. This is the Millennium Biltmore, but it's supposed to be a New York hotel. I have to say, even though so much of the interiors are in Los Angeles, I have to say it sold me you know that it was in new york city very good set dressing yeah i mean at a certain period there are some architectural similarities but also a lot they just built a lot of sound stages for certain things so that is swanky hotel and the manager tells them there's this ghost that's been pestering it's up on the 12th floor and they he really wants them to take care of this quietly and that was part of the phone call with janine where she's like yes i can assure you they'll be very discreet oh <laughs> that's not gonna happen but coming up is is again one of my favorite favorite exchanges in this entire movie it's so good outside the elevator yes this elevator pre-elevator conversation is movie 
comedy gold. Right. So just to, to, to paint a picture, they are now in their proper Ghostbusters uniform. It's the tan overalls. It's got their names on it, the Ghostbusters symbol. And they're carrying these giant backpacks that are their primary weapon. And so they look like exterminators, but like exterminators from space, essentially. <laughs> and so they meet this just regular middle-aged dude by the elevators who looks at them and says, what are you, some kind of cosmonauts? <laughs> and Murray replies, exterminators. No, we're exterminators. Someone saw a cockroach up on 12. <laughs> Must be some cockroach. <laughs> Bite your head off, man. Bite your head off, yeah. <laughs> and then they get in the elevator going up. I'll take the I'll next one. <laughs> take the next one. And so in the elevator. This is the tiniest elevator set. Tidiest elevator set. And this is where we learned that they've never actually really tested their equipment. Yes. They've gotten this far. Each of their equipment is an unlicensed nuclear accelerator. Yes. And then when Ray asks to be switched on, Egon does this beautiful thing where he just sort of they moves both do. into the back of the like I said, it's a tiny elevator space. You got two of them up front. Egon's in the back. And he switches Ray on. And him and uh, Bill Murray both try and press themselves as close to the wall opposite <laughs> Dan Aykroyd so as possible. <laughs> and Harold Ramis is clearly trying to hide behind Bill Murray. He's trying to, like, make his way behind <laughs> Bill Murray. And this is a non-smoking elevator. Yeah, because it's 1984. But they smoke everywhere else in this hotel. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Yes, they do. So they get to the 12th floor and uh, immediately commit a hate crime against a black maid. <laughs> they just blast the crap out of a cleaning woman's trolley. Yeah, she's like, what the hell? They're like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> we thought you were someone else. <laughs> we thought you were someone else. But I love this where they make a point that this is like, uh, we haven't had a successful test. Like, they don't even know what this is going to do. So they are jumpy and a little trigger happy. It's not, oh, here's this brand new thing we just invented and we're now completely competent experts at it. Exactly. <laughs> My favorite little detail of this after they've dealt with the maid, the part of her cart was on fire. There's like a flaming roll of toilet paper on the ground. So she takes the spray bottle and starts spraying the flame to try and put it out. It's so good. But here's the thing. Best um, extra ever. Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd, they've got their packs on. They've got their wands out. They're all jumpy. Murray still doesn't give a shit. He's yeah. walking around bored. He hasn't even taken out his his proton pack shooter. He doesn't have his wand out. He doesn't have any of his equipment going. He's just walking around. It's like when you tell a small child that you're only going to be in a store for five minutes. And even though you're only there for three, they dragged their feet the entire time. <laughs> That's him. <laughs> to a T. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this sequence is where some of the best comedy comes out. It's just, it's so good. And so like they're in an episode of Scooby-Doo, they decide to split up. <laughs> we can do more damage that way. <laughs> we can do more damage that way, says Bill Murray. I'm sorry, I'm going to just keep quoting the movie because it's just so good. Please do. <laughs> so Dan Aykroyd goes around a corner and encounters Slimer. So Slimer, he's not given a name until the real Ghostbusters, but he's the iconic That's actually, green. no, that's not true. He was actually- oh, 
actually oh. named in the original script. It was a misconception that he wasn't named until the animated series. But he wasn't named Slimer. Well, he was named by the crew. His nickname was Onion Head. Yeah, Onion Head. Because he smelled so bad. The, 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 the puppet but smelled so bad. in the actual script, apparently he is named as Slimer. Hmm. But we don't hear it on screen. No. So no. the I'll audience say it might doesn't. be in the credits or something, though. Yeah. Yeah, so he's the iconic green, blobby, gluttonous Just a ghost. blob mouth. Yes, Ghost of John Belushi. Yes. Yes. Ghost of John Belushi. <laughs> it was made as a tribute to John Belushi. Weird fucking tribute, but okay. Yeah, because this ghost is at a dining cart for Rube's service just stuffing his face full of food. And the effects are good. I mean, they're practical, but I, I still love the effects for Slimer in this in this sequence. Oh, yeah, no, his effects are really good. He's on the good side of the inconsistent good-bad. Yeah, something I misremembered but made me love this effect even more. Like you said, he's like picking up plates and plowing him down. Like there's food falling because he's he's messy, but everything that goes in his mouth does not fall through him. Until huh. he gets into the ballroom. If it goes actually in, yeah, yeah. But in this shot, and I just had a moment of, wait, that's a lot fucking harder to do than- <laughs> Oh God, yeah. So Dan Aykroyd is scared so badly that the cigarette falls out of his mouth. Well, it sticks to his lip yeah. for a while. For and a that's actually <laughs> genuine, apparently. Yeah. They didn't they didn't put any adhesive there. He just managed to saliva it. <laughs> Yeah, I say, and as he turns to like kind of walk away and whisper, call for help, it, it that's when it falls off. So yeah, he tries to call for help. Nobody comes, uh, even though he's got a radio. He... I say yeah, which is weird because when Finkman sees it, he uses his fucking radio. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's so scared he forgot he had a radio. You know, okay. who knows? All right. So he tries to blast Slimer with his proton pack, but misses. And how the fuck do you aim with these things? I feel like it's so random. You know, as we see them being used throughout the film how they're able to be used you know like there's no a big it's just it's, it's magic. the same way that you use any gun you you hold it roughly down at your side yet still in front of you <laughs> yeah always aiming at the hip and it's got some mm -hmm. serious recoil and with no sort of stock or mechanism to help brace it you know no nope. just yeah you know it's like holding a minigun <laughs> <laughs> yes but without like a harness or suspension thing to help so Slimer runs away. He runs through the wall, which immediately sli like gets slimy as he goes through it. I love how the touch. trolley also pursues him. Like he wants to take it with him and smashes into the wall. Yeah. Like, does he have just have a food magnet in his ass? Like, <laughs> I love that idea. So Harold Ramis is in another hallway scanning it's and he so comes good. across some random old dude who's <laughs> trying to get into his room and he puts the scanner up and down him and just doesn't, without saying a word, pokes his arm <laughs> to see if he's real. And then just moves on. Oh my god, it's just the best sequence. I like this even better than uh, the original notion, which they didn't film, was it, a woman was supposed to have opened her door hearing the noise in like a, a nightgown or a nightie or something like that. And he basically has the exact same reaction. He moves up, does a poke, and moves on because he's just that fucking awkward. <laughs> it is better, yeah, point. just this rich prick in a suit. I think that was a much better choice. So now Bill Murray squares off a slimer is at the end of the, the hallway. Iconic mo movie moment here. And he radios Dan Aykroyd's like, hey, he's he's right here. And Aykroyd tells him not to move. This will, you know, he won't attack you if you don't move. And that's a lie because Slimer <laughs> just <laughs> runs at him, like flies at him. But what sells it here is Finkman is actually afraid. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Like he's just been bored and sluffing around the corner and then all of a sudden, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. 
here's screams and there's a moment of like oh shit what happened he's did he die at me and then slimer <laughs> his ray calling him an ugly little spud and gets furious <laughs> <laughs> yeah, misplaced aggression much, Slimer? Jesus. <laughs> yeah, dude. You should eat something. Your blood sugar is probably low. Should have gone for Egon. He has the crunch bars. <laughs> yeah, so there's a kind of a fake out moment of, you know, oh crap, did Bill Murray get killed by this ghost? Obviously not. He's the, one of the stars of the film. But he has been slimed all over and Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramers are super happy about Bill Murray getting slimed. <laughs> yes, uh, Ray- Ramus advises him to not move so that he can get pure sand. <laughs> but yeah, Harold Ramis is still, he's not with them. And he radios and he says, actually, uh, he's going to the ballroom. So they go to the ballroom and Dan Aykroyd uses his goggles to locate Slimer. He's just kind of floating around the chandelier in the center of this ballroom. As they're going in the ballroom, they're kind of like stacked up Three Stooges style at the doorway. And the hotel managers, they're like, hey, you're not going to fuck this place up, right? They're like, no, no, it's cool. Totally cool. Egon is smiling. It's one of the few times he smiles in this movie and it is so off-putting <laughs> <laughs> to see him in, like it, have genuine excitement about something. Yeah, and they lock the door behind them so the manager can't come in later when he hears a tremendous amount of noise. All three of them whip out their, their proton pack wads and blast the chandelier. Blast the living fuck <laughs> out of this chandelier. <laughs> and this was the actual ballroom. They made that chandelier and rigged it to fall, but they filmed in the actual ballroom and they had to set up fake walls for like all the burning pyrotechnics and stuff oh my word amazing only now after they've destroyed the chandelier and shot does harold ramus mention oh yeah y- you can't cross the streams the the iconic phrase yeah. from this film hey I, why, what happens if you cross the streams like essentially it could be bad okay what's bad mean <laughs> yeah i mean it's the only clunky exposition in this movie so i think i'll let it slide my issue with this is that hey if you know that this could possibly destroy all life on earth immediately maybe you mentioned that before you all start shooting at a ghost in close proximity to each other just throw that out there yeah that's the joke and it's kind of what bill murray's getting at because when he says define bad egon does explain it it's not a clunky exposition he goes into this whole thing of like all time stopping as you're taking apart neutrino by something like that just destroying all of time and space in a moment that feels like forever and and he's like oh okay so that's what we mean by bad good glad we cleared that up thanks a lot yeah so slimer has just been shot at and instead of running away or attacking them he just kind of heads over to the bar yeah you'd expect him to just eat the fuck out of there he heads to the bar and has a drink yeah he has a drink so he drinks a bottle of red wine and i can't be the only one who thought this but it looks like he's shitting blood right <laughs> <laughs> Just a gushing of blood from his backside. Yeah. Um, Jules, was he the only one? Because I didn't think that. <laughs> I didn't think that either. Okay, yes, you are the only okay, one. Okay, I am the only one who thought that, yeah. The yeah. only thing I, I thought is that the food disappears inside him, but alcohol doesn't. Yeah, it just goes right through him. Solids versus liquids? I mean, that's the way alcohol works with me. It just runs straight through me. like a. <laughs> so Harold Ramis takes a shot at him, misses. Bill Murray quips, nice shooting tech. Thanks. 
And they're eventually able to get Slimer in a positron stream. Uh, so Bill Murray and Harold Ramis have both captured him. Yeah, I find it weird that they never had a successful test, but Ray is calling out what type of streams to use. <laughs> like, I need a containment stream, and then Vinkman do this kind and set your settings to da ba 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 Well, they probably knew what settings they had configured them to have. Whether or not they worked was what was up for grabs. <laughs> but they work. They they got him in a containment stream. Yeah, they basically been wearing him out. You notice Slimer panting more and more as this little destruction of the ballroom is going on all around him. Yeah, Slimer needs to hit up a spin class or something. He's <laughs> he's out of shape. So then Dan Aykroyd slides the trap underneath. It opens and he says, don't look at the trap. And I looked at the trap, Ray. I looked at the trap, Ray. Bankman, shorten your stream. I don't want my face melted off. And eventually some sort of light comes out of the trap and it sucks Slimer in and they've caught him. They've caught their first ghost. There's a little red LED light on the trap that indicates that it is full and they have got their ghost. And Dan Aykroyd says, well, that wasn't such a chore now, was it? <laughs> so good. So they emerge from the ballroom. Discreetly emerge. Janine promised they'd be discreet. Yes. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. <laughs> and it's very hard to be discreet because this trap is now steaming like a motherfucker. It is crazy. The The manager asks the Ghostbusters what it was, and Dan Aykroyd says, Sir, what you have there is what we refer to as a focused, non-terminal repeating phantasm, or a class 5 full roaming vapor. Real nasty one, too. Real nasty one, too. I don't think Dan Aykroyd was given lines for that. I think that was just Dan Aykroyd talking normally. A lot of the jargon and, and technical stuff was he came up with it, because he'd been like you mentioned way before he was into the paranormal, had been ever since he was a little kid so this was just a big passion thing for him it's right came up with all this kind of shit like i said this entire sequence is just gold my theory is that dan Aykroyd for the paranormal jargon just wasn't given lines he just he wasn't even acting he was just being himself in those moments they start talking about the matter of payment and another brilliant moment that young me never picked up on is bill murray consulting with harold ramus while Dan Aykroyd's talking to the manager like he's writing some shit out and showing it to him like this about right and when he starts talking about how much shit costs Ramus is like stroking his chin and scratching his nose and the number of fingers he uses is the figures that Bill Murray oh my goodness I never even noticed that like he strokes his chin with everything but his thumb he's like so that's gonna be four thousand dollars and then for transport and holding and you know Ramus scratches one (laughs) thousand yeah there is this play between them oh oh, yeah so subtle even in those minuscule details that's that's phenomenal I honestly noticed it on this viewing because you were specifically paying attention to take these hard notes for it and I just it blew my mind I'd never noticed this before and the manager it tries to get you know <laughs> it tries to say i won't pay it was never going to be this much and they're like oh, well, all right we'll put the fucker back exactly no problem. like nope, nope i'll pay i'll pay ready <laughs> bill murray just pulls off the pulls off a bill gives it to him and now we get our ghostbusters rise to fame montage we got the the theme music going on in the background we're seeing them responding to various calls we're watching media reaction to them it's such a cliche to have this sort of newsreel montage but the theme song just gets me through it and it's done in such a fun way it, it somehow somehow manages to make it not really irksome <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because it's not just, you know, the spitty newspapers. We're watching local media. We're watching... Larry King! I'd say, yeah, I, I don't get why people get upset about this sort of thing happening in movies now, because it's always happened where they tap the actual people in the media to be responding to this. As yeah, a- Larry King as himself before CNN. Yeah, but you had Casey Kasem on the radio. Who, uh, fun fact, was the original voice of Shaggy in Scooby-Doo. And Robin on the old animated Batman stuff. Yep. And so Gordy Weaver, she's we, we see several shots of her throughout the montage. She's kind of keeping an eye on this. At one point, she's listening to news radio in the kitchen and just smiling. Because that celery is going to make such an awesome stir fry with her kikaman soy sauce. <laughs> or maybe teriyaki. It's a little I, I, it's a little blurry. I couldn't tell if it was soy sauce or teriyaki, but it's definitely kikaman. <laughs> I know that fucking label, damn it. Yeah, my my note here is Sigourney Weaver laughing and making dinner while listening to a radio news report about the Ghostbusters is brought to you by Kickamon Soy Sauce. Mmm, <laughs> stir fry for one. The Ghostbusters are hilarious, apparently. I, I think somebody was just, Bill Murray was just off camera, like, cracking jokes while they were doing that take. I think that's, must because there's no reason for her to be smiling at that point. No, it's like she heard a report of, like, a friend of hers that did something really dumb, and she'd just be like, <laughs> oh, My favorite little moment in this is during a local news report on the street. In the background, there's just Jesus in a Canadian tuxedo just kind of looking at the camera. Well, one of the uh, the magazines that pops up for the Atlantic, I love the title that they had. So good. Do ghosts have civil rights? Yeah, politics of the next dimension. <laughs> Do ghosts have civil rights? Because of course the Atlantic would have that. Of course. There's a weird ass one that pops up, and this had to have been like a National Enquirer type thing. Except now that ghosts are real, they can't publish that type of story. There's a headline for the Ghostbusters diet. Yes. <laughs> There's a newspaper that says Princess Dies can have another baby. Ooh, she was a thing in 1984? Dang. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was I only became to consciousness in the 90s and when she died, but I, I didn't realize she was famous for that long. Okay, so I believe you were heading into Blowjob Ghost before that Yes, came up? so Dan Aykroyd has a dream wherein he's in, like, I guess a sh- an old-timey ship's captain's quarters, and he's wearing a captain's outfit because he's got the epaulots on his shoulders, and this ghost floats above above him and then disappears and then his pants unbuckle themselves and the implication that is that he's getting a ghost blowjob and this uh blowjob giving ghost was a playboy centerfold model amazing oh my god it wasn't just like oh we got someone out of a cattle call they got a playboy centerfold model to be the blowjob ghost but yeah it's just you know the whole ghosts and sex thing just throughout this movie is just a little awkward you're not entirely sure how to take it <laughs> It's, well, I think I was reading somewhere that there was supposed to be a romantic subplot between. Yes, there was a long a extended sequence that got cut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. But they really liked the blowjob part of that sequence, so they figured out a way to keep it in the movie. And on that note, <laughs> will there be more ghost blowjobs throughout the movie, or was that it? Well, you're just going to have to find out after the break. Zul, Vince, come before me. I have a plan to destroy all of humanity. Yes, Lord Gozer. I think you'll find this my most evil plan yet. 
Ooh, will you be unleashing demon beasts upon the humans? Or perhaps you plan on drowning them one by one in a river of blood? Even better! I'm going to have a pissed-off guy build me a temple in New York City. Seems a bit over the top, but okay. Then! I'm going to have you two hide in gargoyles on this temple for several decades. That sounds super uncomfortable. I mean, gargoyles, they have to drain water out through them. Otherwise, we're just statues. Then you two are going to break free from the gargoyles and possess a pair of humans and then summon me to the temple. Okay. And then you'll bring chaos and doom and rivers of blood to the humans. Almost. First, I will let them choose my form. You know, so they feel involved in their apocalypse. That's super important to me, you know? I I like to have people be included. So you're saying that you're going to let the humans choose the form you take? That could be anything. You wind up with My Little Pony or a a Teddy Ruxpin, you know? Oh my god, me as a murderous Teddy Ruxpin? That would be so adorable. Super adorable. Uh... Can I give some notes on this plan? Of course. I always value your feedback, Zool. Well, if I can be honest, this plan is fucking ridiculous. You're a god who's moved between dimensions and slaughtered billions without needing temples or humans or anything like that. Why not just go to Earth and kill everyone with your lightning hands? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I'd try doing a massacre this time with a little theatricality. You know, just killing people outright has gotten really boring, you know? Maybe we could try something that doesn't involve us being inside a statue for, you know, nigh on a century? You know what? I worked on this plan all afternoon. You guys are being super judgy, and I don't like all the negativity. Fine. We'll do the plan. I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for this job having great dog demon insurance. I just know I'm going to get an itch and not be able to scratch it for years on end in my rear end. That's the butthole. You should get take one of those age. demon dog flea pills. <laughs> What? Demon dog fleas. But we're going to be statues. I mean, like, like statues get fleas? Eh? They will now. <laughs> I command there be fleas. <laughs> so says I. <laughs> and we're back. The montage that we left off on kind of is coming to an end now. Uh, we get Ernie Hudson. Yay. coming and he's showing up to apply for a job at the Ghostbusters. I'm surprised that there haven't weren't way more people applying for jobs yeah, you'd at think, Ghostbusters right? at this point. Yeah, it seems like he's the only one who decided to take his resume down there. It's something that got reshuffled. I'm not sure if it was during production or more of just in the edit, but they originally had him on earlier. They had him come in earlier, but then it was like, well, they don't really have the money. They don't really have the means. And now they it's picking up so they would have a need to get someone else to have some additional help. So that's why he comes in at this point. Got it. I mean, that kind of makes sense, but it's also just it feels like this movie is a criminal waste of Ernie Hudson and they don't really develop his character out that much. He does get his moments. I mean, he gets a couple moments, but I wouldn't say like fleshed out character moments. He just gets, you know, some very memorable lines. Before he walks in, uh, we notice that the Ghostbuster sign that was the hand drawn just words is now the iconic symbol on a proper hanging sign in front of the firehouse. And Janine does the interview questions, which I swear, if there 
there was any justice in the world, that would be something you would put in every dating app, you know, just as a pre-screening process. <laughs> yeah, root out the crazies. She's like, asked him whether he believes in a bunch of paranormal slash psychic, psychic, astral projections, the Loch Ness Monster, big He's like, hey, like, if there's a steady paycheck involved, I will believe whatever the hell you want me to, is essentially his response. He doesn't give a fuck. Which my note was, that's, that's what Nick does before every interview. <laughs> it's true. No matter the job. Like, I don't give a fuck. I'll believe whatever you want me to. Crystal healing, sweet. First in the 15th is when the paycheck comes. Don't give a fuck. Great. <laughs> so Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray come in. Uh, they've just come off a job. And they just hire Ernie Hudson on the spot. It's like, oh, do you have a pulse? Cool. Welcome aboard. Just... <laughs> Here you go, and hands him the smoking ghost traps, and he's just like, what the fuck have I got myself into? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, they don't even ask him any questions. It's just like, yeah, he's here for a job. Cool, you have a job now. Then we are f- at the Lincoln Center, where Sigourney Weaver is leaving rehearsal with, I guess, the orchestra at the Lincoln Center with some dweeb. Yeah. And she seems to be happy um, that... Uh, that her stalker has that, arrived. That her stalker has arrived, yeah. Yeah, she is smiling and grinning and clearly trying to hold back laughter. My theory is that Bill Murray was cracking her up in this scene. It must have been. <laughs> well, the little fact part is that this was the first scene they shot together. Interesting. So mm. I, they, they'd rehearsed and stuff beforehand, but this was the first scene they shot together. So I think they didn't have exactly the rehearsals and you know performance of shooting him really perving out on her scenes to, to, to draw from. I mean, I think the, the development for her character is that she finds out Ghostbusters is legit and she was smiling a lot hearing them on the radio they're so, all full yeah. of personality but still it, it, it is awkward that when the stalker arrives she seems happy again my operating theory is that bill murray was just making her laugh the entire time bill murray he's doing some kind of like weird hop <laughs> by the fountain he's just like hopping around <laughs> waiting for her to leave rehearsal apparently he listened in and really liked yeah, her again super stalker who the fuck goes to orchestra rehearsals aren't those clothes i don't think you're allowed to drop into those <laughs> By the way, this scene, best ADR ever. Oh, this was ADR? Part of it. Because of the, the, the Lincoln Center fountain was too noisy. So every oh. shot where it's in the scene, they had to re-record. And some of those are like really tight two shots of them talking. And it matches perfectly. Perfectly, yeah. God so damn. good. Later in the movie, we have bad ADR. I'm so used to bad ADR, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is incredibly good. They actually had permission to shut the fountain off as long as it wasn't in the shot so that way the audio was better so it's a mix of what was recorded on the day and what was recorded later yeah so basically Sigourney Weaver tells this dweeb who has nasal allergies he keeps spraying nasal spray in his nose without needing to blow it afterwards by the way which is crazy but clearly this guy's got a crush on her but Bill Murray kind of steps in and sweeps her away essentially but he this is the only time we see him so he's kind of a thanks for coming character but Bill Murray has some updates about Zool. Apparently he was a demigod worshipped by the Hittites, the Mesopotamians, and the Sumerians. But a great character moment is he doesn't know how to pronounce some of that and she has to... do it for me he's like worship by the what is this hittites okay hittites <laughs> and then she has, she has such a great line well what's he doing in my icebox and my note was if i had a nickel for every time i was told that at a house party <laughs> jules regularly ends up in refrigerators at parties it's it's a little awkward 
And so we also learned that Zul served Gozer, who's kind of a god who was big in Samaria at the time. So demigod Zul, Gozer's the the big boss. Funny reference. That was a bit of a sort of real world thing in which this, okay, so the story that was used for the basis of the movie Poltergeist, the house where that story came from, apparently the word Gozer was like written on the walls and shit like that. It was something actually from the public consciousness that they worked into this movie. And then later, you know, Poltergeist got also. That's wonderful. <laughs> Actually, another crossover with Poltergeist, the guy who did the special effects for Poltergeist was the head of the special effects for Ghostbusters. Explains the awesomeness. And so Bill Murray in this scene continues to be relentless and asks her if she wants to meet up for dinner on Thursday to discuss this stuff more, and she agrees. Yeah, yeah, this is this is the real moment where I said, no, movie, don't encourage stalking. This is bullshit. It's 1984. It was called Romance. <laughs> And so Sigourney Weaver leaves with this dweeb and Bill Murray kind of rubs it in his face as he walks away with Sigourney Weaver. And Bill Murray is so happy that he does a twirl exactly like a roller there's skater. A, the dude the on roller skates. Yeah, they, they're both wearing red. So there's also that match. It's it's a fun little moment. So back at Ghostbusters HQ, Dan Aykroyd is showing Ernie Hudson how the ghost containment system works. The light is green. The trap is clean. And Janine comes out it informs Bill Murray that someone from the EPA is there to see him and you know this movie was shot in Reagan's America when the EPA is the bad guy <laughs> <laughs> right hey, 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 hey I think it's it's perfectly legitimate to call pretty much every government official a slimy bureaucrat but again this is one of those things where this guy has a point and the yeah. only reason why we consider him a bad guy is how he performs oh absolutely if yes. you look at the reality of the circumstance both the dean and the EPA guy have a great point yes. right this is not reality this is a little fantasy movie and so they're a bunch of shits and so he goes up and meets this guy Bill Murray shakes his head he's got slime on his head so he gets the EPA guy's head slime he also wipes and his head his, on his and, jacket yeah, pats his shoulder on his yeah his suit so automatically we've got some antagonism going between them this is the point yeah. where childhood me had decided what science he was going to get a PhD in and it was parapsychology and it was so disappointing it was like finding out there was no Santa Claus finding out that there was no PhD in parapsychology <laughs> yeah because this EPA dick I just call him EPA dick which is weird because he doesn't have one but it's, it's, it is it's a very paradoxical <laughs> name i'm giving him it's kind of you know getting a feel for bill murray ask him what his you know why he's a doctor and this to me is a scene out of clerks because when he says and what are you a doctor of right over his shoulder on the wall is the diplomas yeah <laughs> <laughs> right on his wall and he says well I have a PhD I have two PhDs one in parapsychology and one in psychology so you uh, I, my note here is oh so you have one PhD because the first thing is bullshit <laughs> you have one PhD it's the point Bill where Murray. the set decorator doesn't quite interact with the script also there's uh, there's an important note to bring up and that this scene is brought to you by Wise Potato Chips yes, yes are those is. real yep or at least were at one point <laughs> okay but yeah he has this one little nook of where his diplomas are and everything else else in this office is just trashed yes. it is an absolute pigsty so while he's looking around he's like you're a fucking doctor what what is this place and so he asks him about you know the questions about the operation finds out there's a storage facility and the storage facility is on site and he asks whether he can see it and bill Murray says no 
why why can't I see the storage facility? Because you didn't say the magic word. And what is the magic? He keeps calling him Mr. Venkman. Even after being corrected, he does not call him Dr. Venkman. What is the magic word, Mr. Venkman? He says, now? Like Wednesday? (laughs) Oh, no. Sorry. 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 Wrong wrong movie. Wrong wrong movie. movie. Wrong movie. (laughs) He says, please. You know, I know you're a dick EPA guy, but all kids for like the longest time were told (laughs) that please was the magic word. Yeah. It's not abracadabra. He gets that smarmy, shitty grin of just like, ah, yes, of course. All right. May I please? see the storage facility and murray still kicks him out yeah he, he asks him like what no why do you want to see my storage facility and the epa guy has a legit point here he wants to assess it make sure there's any toxic runoff there might be it might be environmentally problematic and this is a legit concern but we have to have some sort of antagonist so and also a legitimate concern given the fact that they all have unlicensed nuclear accelerators <laughs> on their back right. is evidence that there is some serious potential issues even with you know great scientists yeah and that never comes up in this epa subplot because he's much more focused on this storage containment unit and basically from the get-go having a vendetta against bill murray yeah we didn't even talk about this actor who is this actor william atherton Mm -hmm. okay what's he what's he been in die hard and die hard 2 real genius fucking biodome with Polly shores like as the crazy head scientist yeah oh shit and weird fun fact exact same birth date as arnold schwarzenegger dang <laughs> okay cool, so cool. so him to schwarzenegger it's like the john oliver john cena thing that's going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah so will atherton epa dick says he's gonna come back with a quarter and bill murray says i'm gonna i'll sue you for wrongful prosecution so they're they are firmly not friends now let's get to the twinkie what about the twinkie <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> So down in the basement, uh, Harold Ramis notes that their containment system is getting pretty crowded and he's worried that something big is coming up on the horizon. All his readings are saying that some something's going on. And he uses a Twinkie because, again, there is so much product placement in this movie <laughs> because it was a $30 million comedy at a time where comedies weren't popular or expected to make money. So they clearly offset a lot of the budget through blatant product placement. Hostess pays a fuck ton apparently because he's demonstrating that the Twinkie is the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in New York City and based off of that morning's sample the Twinkie would be 35 feet long and over 600 pounds and Ernie Hudson says that's a big Twinkie. There's something I want to bring up if any guy uses I'm not a big fan of creepy pickup lines but if any guy uses that as a pickup line that should work. It's the only pervy pickup line. That his Twinkie (laughs) is over 600 pounds? Anticipate a Twinkie <laughs> What? No. That's frightening. There is such a thing as too big. <laughs> so Bill Murray comes down, tells him about the EPA guy, and they say that uh, Ernie Hudson says, tell him about the Twinkie. And Bill Murray's like, what about the Twinkie? <laughs> Take a shot every time they say Twinkie in this scene. You it's, have it's cirrhosis now. one of the best exchanges in movies, in my opinion. Again, just so many good dialogue moments that this movie has. So now lightning flashes over Sigourney Weaver's apartment building uh, that's definitely real and not a matte painting. Okay, yes, this is the beginning of the effects starting to suck in this 
this movie. This is where it starts. <laughs> yeah, because this building does not exist in Manhattan. They, they, they had to paint it in. Yes, but other shots have looked amazing. This is where it starts to look a little fake. And then you get to like the set of the top of the building. And that looks fine, but they have the backdrop of the cityscape. This is what Conan O'Brien sits in front of. Oh, easily, yeah. This is absolutely a soundstage on the Warner Brothers lot. This cityscape looks terrible. So bad, yeah. This is definitely a set. I, I will give it the credit that some of the lights kind of like dim and <laughs> get brighter, but that's about it. But apparently this was massive. It wasn't like a thing that they would move. It was actually round and went at least like two thirds around the set so that they could do multiple camera angles without having to reset. I believe this was on Soundstage 16 at Warner Brothers. This is this is me as studio tour guide coming back because that is the largest soundstage in North America at Warner Brothers. If they filmed that there and this is also, I believe, the same soundstage where they filmed the T-Rex scene in Jurassic Park. Oh, so seriously? both of these iconic movie Girl. scenes filmed in the same soundstage. That makes me very nice. happy. But this is where the last thing that terrified the shit out of young me happens. And why don't you explain it for the folks at home, John? Well, we've already mentioned the the, the terror dogs and the statues that are up on the top, and they start to break open. And one of the paws, like the, the statue part goes away and there's this claw in there moving around. And then somehow the eye bursts out and there's this glowing red eye inside. That terrified the shit out of me. The actual terror dogs? No. But this shot always scared the fuck out of me. And whenever I'd watch the movie again, I kept expecting the same things to happen to the lions at the very beginning. Oh, because I was always watching this out of sequence. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I always expected it to happen at the beginning of the movie, too, right before the scary ghost lady in the basement. The demon dogs were pretty scary, I have to say. So inside the building, Sigourney Weaver's trying to sneak past Rick Moranis's party, but he's got some superhuman <laughs> hearing or something. So he comes out of he's got super stalker powers, super stalker powers activate, tells him that she actually can't make it tonight because she's got a date. And he's like, oh, you made a date at the party, you know, and she says, don't worry, we, maybe we'll stop by later. It's like, cool, I'll tell everyone you're coming. And it's okay, you can bring him. Yeah, you can bring him. Like, God damn it. He lists that they're going to play Twister and do some breakdancing, and how much fucking money would you give to watch Rick Moranis breakdance? Everything. I would go in into a tremendous of amount of debt. Put together. And then up that for Rick Moranis as Lewis breakdancing. <laughs> So much money. I would pay so much and money. Somehow Lewis getting locked out has not become old. It's getting funnier. <laughs> it is because he's got a party inside. Someone should be able to let him in. And but even though he can tell she was tiptoeing down the other, like pressed against the other side of the hallway, no one can hear him banging on the door to come back. For in. the love of God, somebody let me in. <laughs> So inside her apartment, I guess she's coming back from the gym because she's kind of got workout clothes on. Yeah, like, was she, I, I had this trying to figure it out, like, does she do dance classes or something? Because she has at least full-on leggings Leg underneath sweatpants. And then I'm like, this loose, like, sweatshirt sort of thing, like, was it more of just like a, a unitard all the way up? Now, it could have been, it's 80s, and that's just what you worked out in, you know? The leg warmers implies that it was some sort of dance workout, I think. Or aerobics, or, I mean, this is kind of like the heyday of aerobic exercise. Yeah, but I mean, there's... There's, they're full on footies. I mean, 
this coming scene scared the shit out of me as a kid oh that's right i forgot this this was this was the the chair the chair yes so basically she sits down her chair she has a call with her mom telling her that she's having a a date with a ghostbuster and when she gets off the phone the camera has angled itself to face the kitchen and the kitchen door is glowing and not only glowing she turns to look at it the face of the demon dog is pressing through it really freaky stuff and she you know was about to run away when these hands burst out of the chair hold her down the chair swings itself towards the kitchen and drags itself across the floor directly towards the demon dog that is on the other side of the I door I sincerely remember watching this and leaping off the couch and sitting on the floor <laughs> wow I believe that I stayed away from that couch for at least a day or two yeah I don't know why I said the statue was last night this was definitely a freaky moment (laughs) but apparently after this the movie feels the need to show us that the gargoyle statues are no longer there just in case you didn't get it yeah there there, there were some really dumb test audiences probably so now we're at the at uh, rick moranis's party the nerd party the nerd party but he apparently only invites his accounting client so he can write this party off as a business expense (laughs) something about new yorkers all they give a shit about is money sometimes Oh my god. I love how they ripped on that. Okay, tell me if this is only me, but he's wearing this blue open collar, like broad collared shirt, and it's got some kind of shimmery lines going down it. And that plus his hair plus his glasses. Tell me he doesn't look like discount Austin Powers. (laughs) (laughs) I had a different reference that came into my mind much later, but yeah, I see what you're getting at. My note about this sequence is that when he does start dancing, even though it's for like half a second, my note is he stole my moves. (laughs) Wow. So there's this really hot blonde lady who's getting bored. She's about to leave and he says to her, hey, if we start dancing, other people start dancing too, things will get picked up. And do you know who this woman is? No, I did not look this up. She plays Loretta on Cheers. So, you know, Nikki gets remarried on Cheers to like this really airheaded blonde lady. That is her. Hmm. Minor role on Cheers, minor role in this movie. Same lady. But yeah, he's there's it's this really wonderful one shot going through the party, actually. But he's talking to all his guests about how cost effective everything is. Yeah, Yeah, he buys generic drugs. Yeah, generic brand. And this was this salmon was this much, but I got it for whatever a pound and the table is just like veggie plates <laughs> that he got from like some store some new people show up it's like hey this is bill and franny or whatever their names are he takes their coats and he starts just divulging their entire financial history yeah. to the party this is just a hundred percent a rip on new yorkers you know it's just all about the money in their accounts and <laughs> <laughs> but I think also a big part of it is because he's an accountant and he's super nerdy about money stuff. Yeah. I yeah. think it's it's also a function of his profession. So he takes her coats and he chucks it on the, the his bed in his room, completely missing that there's a demon dog in there. Yeah, at which point we get back to the cliche of people not looking where they throw shit, where they throw their coats, <laughs> right. just like from small soldiers. It's just, yes, I was you just never about look that. where you throw your coats if you're <laughs> in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> in a movie you do in real life <laughs> I, yeah i never look i mean it, it's hard to find them sometimes i always but... have to look i don't want it to fall on the floor 
<laughs> At least a and brief look. You can take your chances. <laughs> well, a coat getting thrown on him pisses this demon dog off because it just bursts out of the fucking bedroom. And this is where the visual effects get a little wonky because it's... Demon dog stop motion is not aged well. Yeah, when they use the puppet, it still is awesome. Yeah. You know, but whenever the thing has to run around and really move, it does not The intercuts between are just... It's not... You just don't believe it for a second. So Rick Moranis runs, leaves his guest, doesn't give a fuck, gets to the elevator, takes the elevator down. Here's the thing. I feel like the thing to do would not be to take the elevator down and expose yourself. Go to a random floor and stop the elevator between floors and just hide. Why are you bringing logic into my ghost movie? Because that's what I do, John. (laughs) That's what I do. But no, he takes it all the way down. He runs out. Uh, The demon dog blasts past the, the doorman. Pinning the doorman, by the way. <laughs> this is New York doorman. <laughs> this is New York doorman, yeah. uh, el- elderly black dude. But he, he's, we are not done with him because he gets frightened because he's talking to some people. Out in the night, this demigod dog chases Rick Moranis through Central Park, ends up, oh, th- this is a famous restaurant in Central Park. It's like something on the green or fuck. This is such a beautiful New Yorker moment as well. Yeah, no, this is the New Yorker moment. But right before it, as he's running up to it, he's, he's talking about like how he has to talk with the super and there's not supposed to be animals in the building and da 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 this is shitty ADR yeah because he is not saying anything during this shot (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah he reaches this uh Again, famous fancy restaurant in New York Central Park that I am forgetting right now. Uh, greenhouse it's all restaurant. glass. Yeah, it's like a greenhouse restaurant, but it's called like something on the green. Like New Yorkers, you know this place. And inside are very fancy restaurant patrons who do not give a fuck because Rick Moranis is trying to get in. He can't get in and he's screaming. Instead of just like running around and maybe trying to find a different entrance, he just kind of focuses on this one wall, kind of commenting on the indifference of New Yorkers slash the upper class. He gets pounced on by the devil dog. He screams. And I don't think they see it because it's it's possessing him in this moment. He just kind of like slides down against the glass. And, yeah, and they it's kind of- implied he's the only one who can see it. And so, yeah, everyone kind of stops and turns while that's going on. They're just like, oh, no, they're fucking crazy. Well, back to, back to my dinner. <laughs> back to dinner. But people could see it earlier. I don't know. This was a bit of a bit, bit wonky. So back in the apartment building, uh, Bill Murray has arrived with flowers for his date. He walks past the, the broken wall at Rick Rattis' apartment. Doesn't give a fuck. Hey! He pauses to give a little peek and the police are in there like taking statements and he's just like, eh, all right. Actually, it's really funny because he asked, he talks to a cop on his way in the cop about what happened and the cop says, some idiot brought a cougar to a party and it made a mess. Yeah. And uh, my note is, yes, I've been that guy and she has a name. Oh, but it's... Waka waka. Not all my jokes are good, people. It's okay. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. Settle down, kids. So they he reaches Sigourney Weaver's apartment and she opens up and she is wearing like an orange shawl dress with fuck me makeup and teased out hair. Oh, Sigourney sexy is so, so sexy. Goddamn hot. I just can't believe that Dana had that orange shawl. It's true, yeah. Right, but here's the thing. 
she had to have had it. Exactly. Because Rick Moranis, when he gets possessed, he doesn't change clothes. It, like He keeps the clothes that he was possessed in on. So yeah, John, the implication is that Dana, Sigourney Weaver's pre-possessed right. character, had that outfit somewhere. And, and had Zool... to get herself ready for uh, the Keymaster. And by the way, the Keymaster doesn't feel the need to fix himself up for her <laughs> later in the movie, just kind of mirroring. No, he doesn't have to. Because he's the dude. She's ready to accept. She says to him, are you the key master? This is a great exchange. That I, again, I did not understand when I was little. I just didn't get what this scene was. Yeah, because you, you you don't understand sex. I'm just like, okay, the key master, the gatekeeper. But as what? I rewatched the movie and grew older, it's just ridiculously sexy. And he says no. And she goes from 100 to zero. It's great. Yeah, the way she slams the door is so good. But her facial expression is just like, ugh. But she has no short-term memory. No short-term memory because she, he knocks again. She opens up and is like, are you the key master? Still Bill Murray, five seconds later. And he says, yes, I am the key master. He's like, great, get in here. We're gonna fuck. And my note here is exactly at what point does Venkman realize she's possessed? Almost right off the bat because at first he's still sarcastic Bill Murray because as she lets him, he's like, well, technically, I'm just a friend. He's going to meet me here. Da, 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 you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the fact that she's just so into him and he looks around the place and he sees the devastation that's occurred already. He just has this moment of, oh, shit. Yeah. Of, oh, shit. Like there's slime everywhere. Yeah. There's slime on the walls and stuff. And he, he starts playing it more matter of fact, even though he's talking about like, hey, we're getting together and that sort of thing. Like he's trying to tease information out. He's operating more professional than his smarmy stalker self. And so Sigourney Weaver, in her possessed form, uh, says that they are preparing for the return of Gozer the Destructor. And even though he's revealed himself to not be the Keymaster, <laughs> she just wants to fuck. She says, take me now, sub-creature. And there's another exchange between where he had to have ad-libbed this because she says, I want you inside me. And he goes, go ahead. <laughs> okay, no, seriously, seriously, don't. <laughs> like, yeah, there's a, there seems like there's already two in there. It's getting crazy crowded like yeah you already got enough in there it's it's too crowded for me but that go ahead had to have been improv yeah this movie really does take a good look at what what kind of ghost sex is okay prostitute blowjob ghost is fine possessed demon dog woman is not cool maybe there's a mid-ground where you know she could just give him an angry hand job i don't know i think he doesn't want to share <laughs> but it, but it, the fact that he doesn't take advantage of this situation like this is like okay he, he is somewhat redeemable right he tackles with the first sec but like he's like he ultimately says no this is not cool i'm not gonna yeah that's the point at which they try to redeem redeem him as a character iconic line of course there is no dana only Zool. Yes, because at this point, the the action is moved to the bedroom and he gets off of her and he's like, look, hey, uh, Zool, I want to speak to Dana. Her voice changes and says, there is no Dana, only Zool. <laughs> to which he replies, oh, what a lovely singing voice he must have. This voice and Slimer, all the, the supernatural, you know, demon dog saying Zool and all, all of the spirit voices are their director, Ivan Reitman. Oh, oh is that right? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Very cool. So after insisting that he actually gets to talk to Sigourney Weaver, Bill Murray gets to watch as she just levitates above the bed for reasons. Yep. This just kind of just happens because I guess the stunt guy just really wanted to do it, but it doesn't oh, really do anything. It's fun. It's fun, but what it makes stunt guy. Just have to look at her and say, please come down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And then she gets to bark at him. So now outside, back in in the night, a now possessed Rick Moranis is looking for the gatekeeper. And I just love he goes past a steel bed. There's just this one old dude dancing in front of the steel bed. He's just vibing. It's like it's 9 p.m. And he's just do, doing some steel bed dancing. He's great. Asks a horse, one of the Central Park horse and carriage horses, whether or not it's the gatekeeper. The the guy who does the horse ride says, hey, buddy, if you want a horse ride, you got to you got to pay. No, it's like, talk to me. He just draws the carriage. I make the deals. What the fuck are you doing talking to a horse? One thing that did make me chuckle a little is that, you know, well, you have Zool and obvious like demon culty kind of name his name is vince i mean it's v-i-n-z in the script but it said vince so i just love the idea that there's a demon cult name who's got a guy named Vinny who's one of the dogs (laughs) (laughs) it's a jersey thing So after looking at the the carriage guy through red eyes, Rick Moranis, possessed Rick Moranis, realized what's going on and he says to the horse, wait for the sign, all prisoners will be released. And as he's running away, he yells, you will perish in flame. You and all your kind. And my note is that became my war cry of every multiplayer shooter video game that I've ever played. (laughs) And as he's running, he pisses off a homeless person. (laughs) (laughs) Because he just clumsily stumble runs and winds up kicking over this bag of someone who was pulling shit out of a trash can. (laughs) I did. I realize that I thought he just tripped over some crap, but he tripped over some crap and there's someone pulling shit out of a trash can who turns is like, you asshole. Damn it, Nick. Homeless people are people too. You see nothing. Debatable. Anyways, <laughs> so the NYPD drops, they, they, they've caught Rick Moranis and they drop him off at Ghostbusters HQ because, I don't know, we don't want to put him in jail. Janine's line here is fantastic. Fantastic, Janine. And it's, there is so much world building in this one exchange between them. Yeah. Where she just walks out jaded as fuck and goes, dropping off or picking up. <laughs> Such a good line. And the cop is just dropping off. Like they've done this. <laughs> They do this every day. All the time. And she's like, yeah, just a sec. Goes in, gets... Gets Harold Ramis, who kind of does some scans. And there's a lot of readings going off. You know, bring him inside. We'll take care of him. And Janine switches into infatuation mode and says to Harold Ramis, you know, you're a real humanitarian. To which he quickly replies, I don't think he's he's human." human. Yeah. And this is confirmed inside. He straps him up to the Predator same machine. scope, yeah. Yeah, that they had put Sigourney Weaver on earlier. Although they've now added some clockwork orange headpieces. They've clearly upgraded. Yeah, something they cobbled together out of a, um, a colander. This is an example <laughs> of how, you know, simple visual storytelling can reveal what it's used for. It's just to see whatever spirits inside because you see the demon dog moving. Right, because you see on the, on the yeah, you see the devil dog on the screen the same screen where when they strapped in Sigourney Weaver earlier, you just saw Sigourney Weaver. You don't need to explain it. Just show it like that. And Rick Moranis, again with the glasses and kind of the weird thing he's doing with his face and this on his head and again, a little bit of the blue shirt. I just went this is part of the inspiration of Garth from Wayne's World. Like that's what I saw. Interesting. In so possessed Rick Moranis reveals that Gozer has come back in many forms over the uh, eons and... Oh my god, this is such a 
funny fucking monologue of all the appearances Gozer has made in like different worlds and dimensions throughout the ages and how he's destroyed things and the different forms he took. And it bored the fuck out of me as a kid. Me too. Maybe because he was using just so much nonsense and made up words. But this is one of my favorite parts of the movie is this monologue. Well, for me, my note is that apparently Vince Clortho, Keymaster of Gozer, is just as much of a dork as Louis is. <laughs> <laughs> He's like nerding out over the over the previous forms of the destructor. <laughs> And so Janine, who is continuing to hit on Harold Ramis, says, you know, she's very psychic and she thinks that he's going to die and then just hugs him. I, I just <laughs> love the no, line. No reaction. The line where she says, there's something very strange about that man as Louis sniffs the, <laughs> sniffs like a bowl of popcorn. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely taking on more dog-like attributes than than Dana did for sure. So Harold Ramis gets a call from Bill Murray. He's phoning from uh, Sigourney Weaver's apartment. Uh, he's apparently shot up Sigourney Weaver with 300 cc's of Thorazine. Holy fuck. That's a lot. And also, why do you have that on you? How did you get that? Yeah, is that part of his date rape kit? Uh, I mean, we know he's a pervy stalker, but Jesus. Yeah, yeah you're not a medical doctor. You don't have ready access to this shit. Thorazine was also the sedative used in Candyman, uh, if you will remember that scene from the hospital. And so they agree that they're going to keep the keymaster and the gatekeeper apart because getting them together is going to cause some shit. Anyone notice that Sigourney Weaver's panting in her sleep? Yeah. How could you, How could you not miss it? notice this? <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, she's panting in her sleep, uh, having been knocked out by the Thorazine. The shot stays it on stays her on doing her, yeah. this. It's the focus it's, of everything. It's repeated, yeah. that shot, numerous times. <laughs> This isn't random birds that Julian notices. <laughs> Why does Bill Murray leave her unsupervised? I feel like that's such a bad idea. Other than to that they needed that to happen for the plot. Yeah, yeah plot reasons. Cool, we're, we're in agreement there. In the Ghostbusters mobile, uh, Dan Aykroyd is talking to Ernie Hudson, or more accurately, Ernie Hudson is talking to Dan Aykroyd, asking him whether or not he believes in God, to which uh, Dan Aykroyd replies, never met him. Great comeback. Doesn't really have to do whether or not you believe, but still, good comeback. So basically, Ernie Hudson, you know, he says he's a big believer, loves Jesus and all this stuff. And he kind of connects everything that's been going on, like the fact that they've been so busy to biblical end times prophecy. And they quote the wrong verse. Oh, they quote the wrong verse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so weird that like Dan Aykroyd replies like never met him. And he's like, hey, what you remember from the Bible about like the dead coming to walk? He's like, oh, I remember Revelation 712 and begins to mostly quote, but somewhat paraphrase Revelation 612. <laughs> It's one of those things where I can't tell if it's a legitimate mistake or the Whether character they did it fucked purpose, up. Yeah. yeah, like maybe Ray doesn't actually remember the number right, which is totally understandable. And so Dan Aykroyd's also reading schematics for Sigourney Weaver's apartment. That's what he's got out in the car. And they realize that, you know, this might be Judgment Day that they're facing, so they need to get back to headquarters really quick. We pull out, get a shot of one of the bridges in New York City, and we get a good look at the Twin Towers again. My only shock here was I keep forgetting that they were around in the 80s, that the Twin Towers were built in the late 70s. That was my, my shock there versus Sopranos. So back at... At Ghostbusters HQ, EPA Dick has shown up with Con Edison to turn off their power. And random guy in suit hands him a envelope, which I guess contains the court order. <laughs> yeah, the various things they need to legally search the premises and shut down the containment unit. And Con Edison is the utility company in New York City. So more product placement, but like, yeah, again, I guess all publicity in their mind 
it is good publicity because Con Edison is the company that will shut down the power in this scene. And they apparently didn't think that would be damaging to their brand. I mean, apparently their service to people of New York City is damaging enough for their brand. So <laughs> well, publicity is good publicity, as you said. Yeah, I've never heard anybody say that they are happy with their Con Edison service. Just letting you know, Con Edison, nobody likes you. I've never heard anyone say they're happy with their service, no matter what company. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, but there's something specific about Con Edison that I think okay. New Yorkers are not very unhappy with. So they go down into the basement. Harold Ramis is there, Janine. The EPA dick tells the Con Edison guy to turn off the containment unit, and the Con Edison guy is just like, dude, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? This could no be super dangerous. Human being in their right mind would turn it off without knowing what it is. And um, Atherton, the, the EPA prick, has such a fucking America moment. Goddamn Americans moment. Where Bill Murray starts to walk in. Like, he's he's there, but he starts to, like, step in to be like, hey, you can't do this. And the cop tells him to back off. And Atherton's line is, if he does that again, you can shoot him. And the cop's like, hey, buddy, don't tell me how to do my job. You just do your job. It's okay? like, oh, thank you, good cop. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just that, oh, you could shoot him. He is the Reagan era incarnate. The EPA is the bad guy, and we're going to shoot you. So the kind of guy turns off the containment unit, and the alarm starts to sound, and uh, the roof of the building blows off, and a stream of Hawaiian punch comes out. <laughs> Yeah, again, some effects that have not really aged <laughs> oh, yeah. so well. Sorry, a pink light comes out of the top, not Hawaiian punch. The explosion is good. The, the explosion was practical. They had actual smoke coming out the doors and windows and stuff. But yeah, that burst out of the roof. <laughs> yeah. So they all manage to escape before the place blows up, including Rick Moranis, who just kind of wanders off. They lose track of him. Oh, shit. Rick Moranis, I... I totally got into what we were saying. I didn't bring up the note when they were downstairs talking about everything and bantering whether or not to play off or whether or not to turn off the containment center. Rick Moranis is amazing in this scene. He doesn't say anything, but he is in dog mode because his people are like pointing and stuff like he's following where they're pointing. Oh, yes. With his face. Yes. Yeah. He's like and imitating. Just, oh, so fucking That's good. good. <laughs> Yeah, he's trying to imitate, but also, like, look for where they're pointing. Like, maybe there's a treat there or something. <laughs> yeah, great acting by Rick Moranis. So Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson show up, and I think there was a major mistake here. I'll say, please tell me you noticed this, too. Yes, yeah. because Ernie Hudson, when he's in the car with Dan Aykroyd earlier, he's wearing the jumpsuit. But when he gets out of the car at the Ghostbusters headquarters, he's now in a pair of jeans and a lumberjack shirt. And they swapped, and Dan Aykroyd's driving instead of Ernie hudson yes so they stopped by his apartment and he got undressed. so in but so in between being in the middle of the night driving across the bridge to getting to their headquarters they swapped who had to drive and ernie hudson changed his clothes because it took that fucking long somehow apparently and yeah. it's like midday it's like yeah midday it's midday now. yeah massive continuity error here like i said rick moranis has escaped the key master escapes and epi guy tells the nypd to arrest the ghostbusters because apparently he can do that and they do so now we get our ghosts causing chaos in new york city montage scaring people around town and uh we see a ghost go up a tailpipe of a cab and this is where we we get to find out that the crypt keeper has fallen on hard times and has become a cab driver right how does a ghost turn a cabbie into the crypt keeper <laughs> what 
<laughs> well, there was there was um, a cut section where there was like a biker that got killed somehow, and like this is supposed to be its corpse or whatever. But again, how does the biker become the cab driver? It still doesn't fit together. It's right because we, we 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 just see this this like pink ghost go up the tailpipe. So apparently, just the fact that the cabbie got haunted is what turns him into a skeletal zombie thing. I think it's something that was implied in the edit. And what was really happening was in the tailpipe was there was an NBA player who was getting his talent stolen. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that plus also uh, the tail. That's how they got Muggsy Bogues. <laughs> if the tailpipe leads to your driver's cabin, by the way, please get your car checked <laughs> You've out. you got some issues there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's kind of this creepy song going on. Like you're saying freeze? Please. Oh, please. I could never really understand it. But when we were kids, we kind of made up our own words. And so it was freeze for some reason, like super cold. Um, But free the ghosts is something we'd say, (laughs) which was then something we'd always say whenever the dishwasher was open and the steam would come pouring. Uh... (laughs) You're letting letting the ghosts out of the containment center was a thing we always. I mean, I still remember just this one guy who called into this radio show that I used to listen to and, you know, people were talking about mistaken lyrics from different songs. And he mentioned this movie and he always thought instead of Ghostbusters, they were saying those bastards. (laughs) Who are you going to (laughs) call? Those bastards. Those bastards. (laughs) Those bastards. I love it. It's weird how you confuse the lyrics when it's literally the title. But you would think, right? A lot of not so bright people out there. So also during this montage, we we, we have not ha- seen the last of Slimer because he's back and he's eating a bunch of hot dogs in a streetcar vendor. Because it's not New York without a without a hot dog street. It's car. really yeah, my not. My here is uh, New York hot dog vendors have improved their hygiene somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Sigourney Weaver is taken out of her trance and she walks over to her wall and just blows it out. Just like literally force pushes the wall and blows it away. And yep. God Damn, she is so hot in this. <laughs> like she sexily walks up to the window, and then when she's blown the wall away, just has this. It's so hot, unbelievable. And this also attracts uh, the attention of Rick Moranis, the gatekeeper, who's been looking for her. He notices. He hears the explosion. He is the keymaster. He is the keymaster, after all. He's a gatekeeper. Anyway, <laughs> now we're in jail with the Ghostbusters, uh, who were apparently allowed to keep the schematics to Sigourney Weaver's building while. <laughs> they're in holding as you do as you know the really lax rules of jail also very well behaved inmates here i love the fact that all these other people who are in the general lockup cell are super interested in what these nerds are talking about they start to surround and get genuinely interested i thought that was a lovely little touch they don't ask questions they aren't fighting they aren't telling anyone to shut up they're just like yeah huddling around just kind of like nodding and listening and just being very well behaved for a bunch of dudes who got thrown into Jail. shots of them turning and being like oh yeah <laughs> so dan Aykroyd reveals that sigourney weaver's building was built as a superconductor for spiritual turbulence this is where i got my my la quip at the beginning you're of the not episode. skipping the girlfriend speech from bill murray are you oh why why don't you why don't you close <laughs> in on the girlfriend speech <laughs> she's not my girlfriend i like her because she sleeps all over her covers Four feet above her covers. She barks. She drools. <laughs> and my note was, girlfriend speech is what every man's dream was from here to eternity. Hey, if it's Sigourney Weaver, <laughs> she can bark. 
It's fine by Every me. sexual fantasy that every guy has now for the rest of eternity. But also apparently Sigourney's weavers, they, they refer to it as her penthouse. And I mean, again, on a fucking cellist salary, Jesus, is somehow significant to the design of this building. But they're, they're not going to tell you why. It just is. Fuck you, audience. <laughs> yeah, just the materials that were used and the way the like the angles and of the building and construction make it like. A, yeah. Spook central. A beacon, but... sort of, for paranormal activity. Yep. And when Egon's explaining the shit about Gozer and what all this means, he is a, once again smiling. This is what he gets off on, and it is creepy as fuck. Yes, his his retelling of these facts is very uh, disturbing, just based off of his facial expression, because he reveals that this building was designed by a doctor-slash-architect uh, who, jaded by the events of World War One, figured humanity had to go. Makes sense, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I mean, World War One was a massive trauma throughout the world. And he started a cult of Gozer worshippers in 1920 who performed rituals to bring about the end of the world. And now it's happening. Like, they, it's finally all coming together. So they need to get out of jail because they got to go fight this Gozer god. And lucky for them, there's a there's a mayor ex machina that gets them out of mm, prison. Very helpful. <laughs> yeah, guard tells him the mayor wants to see them. This is not just any guard. This is the only cop ever, Reginald Bell Johnson. <laughs> 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 So back at the building, uh, Rick Moranis has found his way home, uh, goes up to Sigourney Weaver's apartment, which is an absolute fucking mess. And she is just splayed out on her chair. She's just been chilling. My notes is when uh, the door flies open and Louis <laughs> is there is that that's got to be the lamest reveal of door flying open ever. <laughs> it's a very disappointing figure behind the... <laughs> <laughs> the door there. So they introduce themselves, you know, I am the key master, I am the gatekeeper, and they make out because, you know, hey, Sigourney Weaver got dulled up and she has to make out with somebody, right? And so they walk up this, there's this staircase that has now been revealed that was where the fridge, behind where the fridge used to be. I do think we should acknowledge that Sigourney Weaver dip is exactly what I want in my life. Well, you're never going to get it, dude, because you are surprisingly, she is six feet tall and you and I are both taller yes, than her. Yes, but I weigh like nothing. She could dip me without any trouble. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver, if you need someone to dip... Jules volunteers as tribute. I have a weird bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> so the Ghostbusters are now being escorted through a crowd of press to the mayor's office. Uh, EPA Dick is there and he accuses them of using hallucinatory gases and light tricks to fool people into thinking that they're seeing ghosts and that they are busting them. Yeah, see, earlier it was this guy actually has a point, but now he's just pulling shit out of his ass. Yeah. Yeah, now it's about his ego. He's just pissed off that, like, they were right and he fucked up. And then Dan Aykroyd says to the mayor, yeah, everything was fine until Dickless over here cut the power. One of the best lines. <laughs> and the mayor says, is this true? To which Bill Murray replies, it is true. This man has no dick. <laughs> which apparently caused Atherton a lot of trouble in real life because people would recognize and be like, hey! It's Dickless. Oh my god. Oh, oh, don't man. do that to people. It's just fucking movies. Seriously, it's like how people... I've got to I've got to yeah. communicate with America in general. Movies are not real. You have got to get this through your thick heads. People who are writing letters to actors thinking that they are actually the person they're playing. This is starting to get out of hand. It's been a number of years. You know this isn't real. What the hell? 
It still happens today. The kid, the kid who played Joffrey on Game of Thrones, basically quit acting because people thought he was that fucking exactly. evil. And a gun gets got horrible tweets during Breaking Bad. This is stupidity and abuse. What the hell is wrong with you? Samuel L. Jackson has an amazing monologue about this, about like choosing your role models and stuff. And he's like, if you want to make me a role model, make me your role model. Not Jules from Pulp Fiction. Not Nick Fury. Not da 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 da. I'm a father. I'm a husband. Exactly. I pay my taxes. I've never been to jail. You can use me. Hardworking career, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, he goes on a bit more, but... It's ludicrous. Yeah. I just don't Amazing. get that America really... I mean, I, I guess it happens in England too, so this is an American thing, but it's it's just... It's beyond stupid. This magic box is not showing you real things. So anyway, they, they've, they've got a whole bunch of experts in this mayor's office. They got the, the head of the fire department who says, like, I've never seen combustion like this before. One of the another official says, hey, this can't be freaking gases. People way far uptown are seeing their walls bleed, you know? Well, that definitely could be a <laughs> that definitely could be as a result of certain hypnotic drugs that walls bleed. Yeah, but we're talking a citywide scale. Citywide here. scale. Yeah. yeah. And then a Catholic cardinal shows up um no the mayor kisses his ring which is uh highly problematic but then for apparently the they were also old state. friends because they're addressing each other by their first names yeah very weird i i don't know the the religious elements to this movie they really don't pay off i don't know why they're even there i, I think he's just there to basically to say that the catholic church doesn't have any position on this just so people are don't think that they're basing it. These any of these things are based on religion. That this has got nothing to do with religion. Oh, it's its own I thing. See. I think they were. Try- I think they're trying to preempt like a religious okay, backlash. Okay, that makes sense. And so after all of this, Ernie Hudson makes an impassioned plea to believe the Ghostbusters because ghosts are real. That's best line. <laughs> yes. Oh, but this whole time he's been trying to distance himself from. Them. Yeah. Yes. Like when they go into lockup, he's like, "Dude, I just worked there. I wasn't there. I wasn't part of this." And then another time he looks at the guys, he's like, "I think I need my own lawyer." Yeah. But you he, but he all steps up for his for his new business. You know, I've seen shit. Yeah, that he does. Make, I've seen shit that will turn you white. Lovely <laughs> reaction. This works. This and Bill Murray's like, "Hey, man, just like let us do this. If we fuck up or if it's not real, just throw us in jail. We'll go. It's like whatever." But what convinces him is appealing to the politics side. Yes, he says, but if we're right, we're going to save millions of registered voters' lives. You, sir, Genius. would have saved well, voters' also, lives. Also, we get the, the best end of the world rant ever. Yeah, talking about biblical proportions, fire raining from the skies. and you know, Dogs and cats and living then... together, mass hysteria is yep. still one of my favorite lines from this movie. And so they kick EPA dick out and the mayor asks them what they need. And apparently what they need is an escort through the city from the National Fucking Guard. It's like, yep, give us our stuff, let us do our thing. That's what we need. Right, there's that, but yeah, they literally call up the National Guard. They're, okay, military nerddom, very quick. There is a National Guard base in Brooklyn, so they could get National Guard there pretty quickly, but that involves a call to the governor, and I don't think calling up the governor would be like, hey, we need the National Guard so some guys can fight ghosts in our city. I feel like the governor would be like, I'm sorry, are you hi mayor <laughs> my attention was too distracted by the protesters who have ready-made signs for just such an event none of those signs were handwritten that was all printed yeah, out it was, in- <laughs> it was all printed with all the 
exact same font. But here's the thing. On the other hand, I was like, you know what? If you're a Doomsday fanatic, you just have these ready. But a, a lot of middle-class Doomsday fanatics with great design printing press <laughs> access in New York City. <laughs> there was a fantastic deleted scene, or um, a deleted part of the sequence of the National Guard and them getting in the car and everything, which would break up the pacing, but it's again with Janine and Egon and her trying to, you know, start some sort of a romance thing. She has this lucky coin that's been in her family and she wants him to have it. And his response as deadpan as ever is, I don't think it's a good idea for me to take this. We may not come back. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, well, you should, you should have it anyway. I have another one. So this crowd is not at where they leave the mayor's office. And then, like, this crowd has formed outside the building where black clouds are forming, you know, by not a matte painting. Don't think about it. Black clouds are, are seeping out of the top of this building in a slow-mo version of a cartoon that just drank whiskey. <laughs> yes. And steam shoots out of their ears. <laughs> yes. That is what is happening to this building. It just took a shot. This crowd, as they're pulling up, this is the moment I was talking about where people were chanting, Ghostbusters and a producer was on a pavement going, you better get the rights to this fucking title. They get there and somebody's being wheeled out of the building on an ambulance gurney for whatever reason. I totally didn't see that. Yeah, the Ghostbusters arrive and somebody's getting wheeled out on a gurney, getting rushed to the hospital. The the Red Cross is on site at some reason because I guess they had to get the Red Cross product placement in instead of having municipal medical services. And so the Ghostbusters arrive and instead of just getting to work they need to do some crowd work first yeah. <laughs> like get the crowd revved up of course Vink- yeah does. Venkman's part of his character he is a game show host they finally get their proton packs on and then we see some return of the Jedi lightning on top of the building <laughs> there's wind and all of a sudden yeah the ground cracks open for reasons yeah unnecessary earthquake is unnecessary Th- they basically wanted a way to introduce stakes well not really stakes but like weird shit can happen at any notice like big dangerous shit can happen at any point also i wanted to include that this is one this has got to be maybe the fourth or the fifth worst fall in movie history because when they do fall it's like whoa it's really overdone yeah they fall into a sinkhole a cop car sinks into the ground like a tight like the titanic and by the way this is first of many times where the crowd should have run away and doesn't There's so many moments up until, like, uh, from this point where the crowd should have run away. They should have been spooked. Something should have gotten them to leave and never come back, but it just fucking doesn't. There's a quote from Egon later that I am attributing to this moment, though. Okay. Well, I was going to mention it when he actually says okay, it. Okay, when he actually says it. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. So eventually they get up, they get cheered by the crowd, and they finally go into the building to do their fucking jobs. It's like five minutes of, like, fucking around. And now they're going up the stairs because I guess they can't take the elevator. Another great painting. There was only about two flights of stairs in this shot looking up this enormous stairwell of like 20 30 something floors of a building yeah but it seems to go on forever billboard's like hey so what floor are we on dagger Ackward's like yeah yeah somewhere in the teens so bill murray says okay when we get to 20 tell me i'm gonna throw up i'm i'm pre-planning this vomiting that i'm gonna be doing and so back on the roof which is definitely not soundstage 16 at warner brothers um a very unnecessary but very appreciated shot of sigourney weaver getting up very 
sexily from the altar up there. That's a post-coital on the uh, sex altar. Yes. Heavy implication that she and possessed Rick Moranis just boned on this altar. We get more Return of the Jedi lighting on top of the building, and the Ghostbusters make their way up to Sigourney Weaver's floor. Harold Ramis says, Art Deco. Nice. And I agree. I agree, Harold Ramis. I'm a big fan of Art Deco, too. You and me, bud. I did have a question, although at this point, uh, and I'm not sure if this occurred to any of you guys, is when Sigourney Weaver and Lewis, they get back up outside of the altar, they turn back into dogs. Why did they need human bodies? That is a great question. Because claymation dog sex is awkward. <laughs> Disagree. (laughs) The whole reason for, you know, the possession just gets a little skated over, I think. The reason is to give the movie personal stakes for the Ghostbusters. That's really it. Like in, In world logical consistency, no, but there was that emotional aspect. Like he, he needs somebody, a reason to save somebody on an emotional level. So now they're standing on, so uh, Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis, they're standing on the places on the rooftop where they were statues. They, they're, yep. they're in the same positions and purple lightning flows through them from the top of the building, shoots at this temple door that opens up and we see the temple of Gozer inside and the Ghostbusters arrive just in time to see this as well as Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis turning back into dog demons. And it's night now, just so like, you know, it, it is firmly yeah. nighttime now just to make sure this is all extra Yeah, spooky. again, it was midday, early afternoon when they were downstairs. Took them a long well, maybe time later, to get Maybe later steps. afternoon. Yeah. They've, they've, they've summoned the eternal night. Yeah, but this isn't dusk. It is night. Although there was the darkness seeping out of the building. Yeah. So yeah. you could go with that. Sure. So the demon dogs, like they run into the temple up these very smoky stairs and they take positions kind of like the lions outside the library uh, next to these stairs. There's this pyramid in the background. It's got a glass translucent gate in front of it. There's its own cloud system inside this area. And Ziggy Stardust emerges. Yeah, David <laughs> Bowie was, comes well, out. I was going to say discount David Bowie. That was my <laughs> my position as well. Well, no, that was actually um, part of the idea that they finally settled on was this sort of androgynous look. And they were thinking David Bowie, wanting David Bowie or someone like Grace Jones, but it was too late in the process to sign on another big name for some reason. Well, yeah, this was already a very expensive movie. And so they got this lady who was like an Eastern European model and dancer. Yeah, she's Yugoslavian. Can say Yugoslavian because Yugoslavian. Slavia was still a thing in 84. This is Gozer, this woman, and comes out as a ball of light, turns into David Bowie. <laughs> and... <laughs> I love that that's a sentence that was just said. <laughs> yep, the shit you say on this podcast. And so somebody says, I thought Gozer was a man, and the reply is, it's whatever it wants to be. And then Dan Aykroyd approaches in a very official language, tells Gozer to leave, like, you know, please exit to the nearest trans-dimensional place portal whatever the nearest convenient alternate dimension which I- <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> I don't know why that line. I love it more and more. So David Bowie lady's like, are you a god? And they're all kind of like nodding out of like, yes, say yes. And Dan Aykroyd turns around and says, uh, no. No. <laughs> Which is the wrong answer. The wrong answer. And so then you must die and shoots out purple lightning from her hands that almost blows them off the side of the roof. And another great Winston line from Ernie Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He says, Ray, if someone asks you if you're a god, 
you say yes. <laughs> so good. And the people below see the purple lightning. Don't leave. If I see purple lightning coming off the top of a fucking spooky Sumerian style building, I'm getting the fuck out of there. Your feeble skills are no match for the power of the dark side. <laughs> Literally that. But is it Sumerian or is it Babylonian? Big difference. I think they, I think they end on Sumerian. <laughs> Where the Hittites worshipped. Okay, got it. Yes. <laughs> where the Parthenon is. Yes, the, the Acropolis where the Parthenon is. So this voice of Gozer is Patty Edwards, who would also probably be best known to our audience as Flotsam and Jetsam, Ursula's pet eels in The Little Mermaid. Oh, is that right? Oh, the same, oh my the goodness. The same actress as the eels. Yeah. Very That's cool. fantastic. They take out their proton pack wands and they, it's a very big moment because they're all very in sync and, you know, going through the motion, the official motions of how to do this. This isn't an yeah, ad Yeah, now they got their shit down. This is yeah. big damn heroes moment. And they shoot at David Bowie lady and she does this insane flip over them outside the temple onto the altar. The demon dog sex altar, yeah. Yes, onto the, the demon sex dog altar. sex altar. And Land in heels, by the way, wearing heels, lands in heels, and they crank up their proton pack, shoot again, and she disappears. And they're like, oh, you know, they, they think they've got her. Bill Murray says, it's Miller time. And it's like, hey, can you have two rival beer companies sponsoring your movie? You were all in on Budweiser earlier. This is confusing. Yeah, but Budweiser didn't have a cliche line for the end of the day. <laughs> It's true. But, yeah. So Harold Ramis is getting some bad readings. This doesn't seem to be over just yet. False ending. The building starts to crumble. The crowd runs away, but they'll be back. But the, not the, really. This, they, they kind of just, it looks like they're running away, but they're, they, they will be running away multiple well, times. shit falling at them. But like, the building's supposed to be rumbling, and you know, the guys are losing their balance. And all I can say is, this shit makes Star Trek look good. <laughs> yes, this was not a great effect. This is really poor them stumbling and us shaking the camera a bit. And also, for some <laughs> reason, Goza gives them the choice of how they're going to be destroyed, and I never understood that either. Yeah, because we hear her voice saying, the traveler has come and they must choose the form of the destructor. Like, I don't know who the fuck the Traveler is or whether this is Gozer that's going to... It lists a bunch of names for Gozer, and so it's just sort of these things that I have been called before, like laying out the, here is Daenerys, breaker of change, mother of dragons, freer of Astapor. Got like, it. Yeah. Gozer, mother <laughs> of marshmallows. And, it, and it's also a callback to the Rick Moranis hilarious monologue talking about all the different forms that Gozer has taken when overthrowing and destroying all these civilizations. Got it. So Gozer's giving them the choice of what form it yes. will take when it destroys them. Yes. Choose your own demise. <laughs> choose your own demise. Bill Murray's like somehow knows that, hey, nobody think of anything. It's going to read our minds. And if we think of J. Edgar Hoover and address. So why did J. Edgar Hoover not show up at this point? Because everyone would have thought of J. Edgar Hoover. All right. So Gozer gives them a little time yeah. to, you know, actually but, collect you their know, thoughts. All and... will be forgiven for one of the most iconic moments oh, in so movie good. history, as well as the most one of the most iconic movie monsters in movie history. Yes, because they all clear their mind. And then Gozer says, 
something to the effect of, you know, it has been chosen. And Bill Murray's like, okay, who the fuck thought of something? And they all look at Ray. It just popped in there. Just popped in there. <laughs> you know, I I just, I tried to think of the, 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 the most innocuous thing. Footsteps. The thing that could never possibly hurt anyone. Yes, footsteps. You have reaction shots of people freaking the fuck out. It's this enormous buildup. A glimpse of yeah. a monster between two buildings. Okay, again, that's a shitty shot. That tracking shot is such a horrible <laughs> model. Yeah, obviously a soundstage set miniatures, but it is the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. That is who we thought of. A hundred foot Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Oh, he's taller than that. Well, that's anyway. that's what how they describe him, but yeah, he is taller than that. Massive Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. By the way, there was like a second bit of Stay Puffed Marshmallow for it. I forget what it was, but like they, they dr- had dropped hints at least twice. There was the one in Sigourney Weaver's apartment. I think they had an ad for it on a street sign somewhere. They drop crumbs. So yes, we get the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Like the Michelin Man meets the Pillberry Doughboy in a sailor hat. That's <laughs> how well they... described. <laughs> and he's he's walking around with just like what the regular mascot's happy smiley face was. And that's cool. But then like he gets closer to the building and looks up towards him and it starts to turn into angry face. And yes. it's the most adorable fucking thing. I know. It, it is. <laughs> I love angry Stay Puff. It's such a great He look. has the voice of a dinosaur from Jurassic Park. He <laughs> does. So here's the thing. So so Dan Aykroyd, because he's continued to explain like why he thought of the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. He had so many childhood memories of, you know, making making marshmallows and he recalls roasting stay puffed marshmallows at camp wakanda i had to turn on subtitles it's spelled differently than black panther and (laughs) i did not get a chance to look up if it's a real place or not but it's w-a-c-o-n-d-a like anaconda okay but it sounds (laughs) like the black panther country Hand to the chest, Wakanda forever. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I had to stop when I listened to it. And I'm like, well, Black Panther had been a long established character at this point already. So, <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's a, a reference. But oh, my God, Ghostbusters Black Panther crossover make it happen. Camp Wakanda actually is in Wakanda, the country. <laughs> No, 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 no. Oh my God. It's it's uh, because at the beginning of Black Panther, there's a few of those people who had left Wakanda and are living in New York City. So it's just like a little... True. It's a mini burb. Oh. It's a mini burb. Like they they go and do like white people outreach programs. <laughs> they had little cook fires over, you know, like the metal trash can fires and roasting the marshmallows. And that's yes. <laughs> Boom. Got it. Done. So yeah, we 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 get this this Stay Puff Marshmallow Man kaiju attack on New York City, <laughs> and this is where the Egon line is because Bill Murray's going, uh, Ray's gone bye bye because he's regressed to his childhood, and he's like, Egon, what do you got? And his line, which accounts for the whole crowd as well, is, I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Beckman, I'm terrified beyond the capacity. Just deadpan delivery. It's, okay. it's amazing. This guy's a sailor. He's in New York, we get this guy laid, we got no problem. <laughs> yeah, because after they, they they shoot at him, they set him on fire, and they hide. Yeah, and so Bill Murray's line is, we've been going by this whole run. You know, this this Mr. Stay Puffed, he's okay, he's a sailor, he's in New York, we get this guy laid, we won't have any yeah, trouble. The, the difficulty of not quoting this movie start to finish has been so difficult throughout this recording. It is tough. 
Yeah, I mean, other than like some slightly outdated gender norms that they do with Sigourney Weaver and some of the special effects having aged, and I will say that their characters don't really develop that much. Like it's very, and you don't really feel the camaraderie. They don't develop that a lot. It's just kind of, you have to go with it. Other than that, it's still a fucking great movie. So iconic. But yeah, I just wanted to say Ivan Reitman got to shoot a Godzilla movie in his Ghostbusters Mm -hmm. movie for a hot second during this moment. Yeah, so Harold Ramis realizes that, hey, if they cross the streams, they can destroy... And shoot at the doorway. And shoot at the doorway. Why is this going to work? Shut up, dude. It's a Ghostbusters movie. Is the movie's attitude towards this? Also, just a little, you know, sincere goodbye line. Pleasure working with you, Ray. Pleasure working with you, Ray. Like, you, these other two can go fuck themselves, but it was nice working with you. <laughs> Yeah, so Cross the Streams, this thing that he very explicitly says at the beginning of the movie not to do, this is what's actually going to save the world. Maybe, who the fuck knows, but it's our best shot. There is a moment here that I had to pause and I took a photo of my TV that I'm going to send you guys. And Because uh, Vinkman and uh, Ray have already put their streams together. And it's while Egon and Winston are adding theirs, Stay Puft has arrived at the top and somehow realizes what is going on and has an oh shit face. That's true. And why do we not have this, but instead got stuck with surprise Pikachu instead? Because oh shit, Stay Puff face is amazing. It is amazing. And now we get to the point at which they all definitely got incinerated and died. And it was a very <laughs> right. tragic ending to this comedy right. movie. Yeah, they cross the streams. They pointed at the, the, the transparent gate. Causes a massive explosion that melts Stay Puffed Man. And causes a thermonuclear fucking explosion on top of the building. Yep. And yeah, Jules, they all die. Yep, they're atomized. Yeah, their charred remains are recovered later and they are given a hero's funeral. And the movie takes a very somber turn here. Just kidding, they survived this. The version I saw, they found nothing. And um, Nick Cage at the end of The Rock has to explain how they were turned into vapor and blown out over the harbor. There is no way to even explain around the physics. The Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man's face gets melted off. There is no way to explain. It doesn't show them taking cover. It doesn't show. There is no way to explain this away. And by the way, the fucking crowd has already come back after having run away from the Stay Puffed guy climbing the building like King Kong. Yeah. So there's pieces of molten marshmallow, quote unquote, falling on everybody. People got fucking burned. That's all I'm saying. Molten marshmallow is hot. It cools quickly and it hurts like hell because then it's sticky and you kind of rip some skin off. People got fucking burned but apparently not epa dick apparently for some reason epa dick is there watching all this and he gets a giant pile of he gets splooged on by definitely not shaving cream it's marshmallow (laughs) guys seriously (laughs) back on the roof we have a small are they dead fake out obviously not and i'm pretty sure bill murray had it in his contract that he didn't have to be covered in shaving cream because every member of the ghostbusters is just covered in shaving cream and he's not all three of them there and they're like oh my god where's Vinkman? and he just comes walking out with like a little bit in his hair maybe some on his shoulder and he's just like he has this look of the hell guys and they have this look of like the fuck did you dodge all this like 
because they are smothered. They're like comical amounts of. I mean, it's shaving cream. Yeah. It is shaving cream. That's all. And I'm, I'm, I'm just watching the scene, thinking they must be so fucking cold, right? Being smothered in that much. This must be. They must be cold and wet, and this must have been miserable to film. I say this, and with Murray having the slime on him, like the whole time in the hotel, because for the rest of that yeah. sequence, he's still covered in the stuff. Yeah. So the temple's a wreck, and they realize that because the 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 dogs have been charred, the dog demons. They realize that, oh, fuck, Sigourney Weaver's probably dead. And this is where Dan Aykroyd could not hide his Canadianness <laughs> because he says, oh, Venkman, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just <laughs> he, he can't help but say sorry in a Canadian accent. However, a hand bursts through the charred remains of the demon dog and they rush over. And they help pull the piece away of the demon dog to reveal Sigourney Weaver. They also help Rick Moranis out and they kind of leave Bill Murray to, to hero carry Sigourney Weaver. The rest of the attend to Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis looks around. He's got charred. He's got charred face, and he looks around. He says, "Boy, the superintendent is gonna be pissed." <laughs> Another wonderful deleted bit for an extension of the scene, where he's like, "Hey, hey, Dana, did did we um did we?" <laughs> so Gorney Weaver has this brief flicker of realization, and then just turns to him and, "No, Lewis, <laughs> no." I could have, I could have sworn we, no, Lewis, and then walks away. <laughs> and so as they're taking Rick Moranis down, you know, Ramis is like, yeah, we'd like to get a sample of your brain tissue. And Rick Moranis is so out of it. He says, okay. Never change, Egon. Never change. And Ernie Hudson covered in shaving cream just yells, I love this town. New York, okay. And so outside the fucking crowd is back again. And we reverted to daytime. Yeah, it had to have been the seepy darkness. Yeah, it got sealed back up. Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver kiss because, of course, they have to. We foreshadowed this. The theme song is playing throughout. Janine comes out of nowhere because she's worried about Harold Ramis. Rick Moranis comes out like, hey, does anybody want to interview me? And gets whisked away by the Red Cross. They're like, no, you can't go with them. You're going to come with us. Just you, though. Just you. The other three Ghostbusters have a surprising lack of shaving cream at this point. Yeah, they've all, I guess, glooped it (laughs) off of them. Well, Vinkman never really had any. That's why I'm saying the other three were absolutely covered. And now they just have a little splotch here and there. The doorman from earlier, he's come back. His uniform's all fucked up, but he helps them, you know, into the car and closes the door for them. Some Catholic priests are making the sign of the cross over a giant hunk of marshmallow. Some of the crowd already has Ghostbusters t-shirts letting the audience know that, yes, this movie will be merchandised. Calm down. (laughs) And I really like how they did this because you know how we talk about certain late 80s, early 90s movies having the end credits where it's the characters from the movie turning to camera and I'll smiling. Say, yeah, this as- isn't the turn and smile thing, though. This is just the final footage of them leaving and being celebrated and heading out. Right, but but as they're leaving, the uh, you know they're is in the scene still, but we see their credits come up over them yeah. as we're kind of winding things down. And I thought that was a really cool touch. I thought that was a really cool technique. I think more movies yeah, should I'll do say, that. Yeah, again, though, it's the scene as playing out, not just we shot them to smile at the camera. <laughs> And they drive away, crowd chases after them, and we end the movie with Slimer flying at us, the audience, to camera, screaming. That's how we end the movie. And yeah, that was Ghostbusters. And before we go, as millennials, we know that every movie and TV show has a moral. So, uh, Jules, what did you learn today? Well, I learned that sex with possessed people is wrong, but blowjobs from ghosts is okay. 
It's a very important distinction to make. And John, how about you? Did you learn anything? I learned that if you persist, the lady who keeps telling you no and is very proper, she'll eventually realize that she just wants to have sex with anyone who comes her way. (laughs) That's so true and awful. And I learned to be suspicious of apartments and fancy buildings on Central Park West (laughs) that are somehow affordable to cellists. I just don't trust them. And of course, before we go, we need to tell you what we're doing next time. John, what do the folks at home have to look forward to? We've got to? another adaptation coming up. Now it's 1995's The Indian in the Cupboard. Ooh, this is going to be... boy, I'm sure that's going to have aged gonna well. so well aged, you know, just from the title, you can tell. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No problematic <laughs> elements in this movie, I'll tell you that. And John, uh, just to get everybody at home titillated, do you have a review for us? I do. From 1995, from the San Francisco Chronicle, The Indian in the Covered is such a sweet film and so lacking in the bloodthirstiness and violence that parents dread in children's films that its mere existence seems worthy of praise. Too bad, then, that it turned out so dull and lifeless. <laughs> Uh, if it's just dull and lifeless <laughs> we will be getting away <laughs> yeah because if that's all that's wrong with it, it was smooth sailing but i got a funny feeling we're gonna be talking As about a lot, lot more. <laughs> it's more like a combination of dread and excitement and that's our show. If you liked it, please subscribe. If you loved it, please share it with all your friends. And whether you liked it or loved it, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. Also, be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Links to both of those are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Millennial Rewind. Zul, Vince, come before me. I have a plan to destroy all You're stealing of humanity. My voice. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> okay, I'll go back That's to the it. other. I'm out.